Hello everybody and welcome to an end season episode of Sequelizers. I am your host, as always, Jack Chambers, and joining me, also as always, it's Matt Stockton. I like non-fiction. There is so much to know about this world. I think you read something, somebody just invented it. Waste of time. Yeah, I can see where you come from. I know people who are like, why waste my time on fiction? Because it's not real. You need to ingest the knowledge. Psychopaths. Yeah, yeah. Complete psychopaths, absolutely. And speaking of psychopaths, also <laughs> joining us, it's Tim Matum. You want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Wow, nice and... No truth handler are you, I, I sir. <laughs> it's true. It's very true. I can't handle the truth or fiction, I guess. <laughs> uh, I don't it, think anyone's going to know what the fuck is going on No, 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 no. If, if, you're, if you're just press playing on this episode without looking at the title... I'm sorry, it's probably one of the most confusing intros we've ever done. But this episode is actually, in fact, about movies based on a true story. Boats. Boats. What? Based on a true story. Yeah. B-O-A-T-S. Oh, fucking hell. <laughs> what? I was like, is this a pig's thing I'm not getting? <laughs> get it what? now, son. Wow, okay. Yeah, this is Titanic, the boat. This, this is the boats episode. Apparently, there you go. <laughs> and it was, in fact, the topic for this episode was, in fact, picked by one of our patrons, one of our executive producers. And if you, dear listeners, would like to join this wonderful executive producer, you can go to Patreon.com/sequelizers. You can get early access to the episodes. You can get ad-free episodes. You can get exclusive merch. You can get discounts on merch, shout-outs on our live streams. And if you go up and become an executive producer, you get a shout-out on this very show, just like these fine gentlemen have. Andy Steen. Look at me, sure. Look at me, sure. I'm the captain now. Mike Salvia. I'm Spartacus! 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 Josh Miles. We gotta start thinking like these Wall Street guys. You see what they did to this country? They stole from everybody. Hardworking people lost everything. And not one of these douchebags went to jail. Jonathan Firth Clark. Wanna get Capone? Here's how you get him. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. And that's how you get Capone. Josh van der Sluis. And I'll bet what you hated the most is that they identified me as a co-founder of Facebook, which I am. You better lawyer up, asshole, because I'm not coming back for 30%. I'm coming back for everything. Michael Belcher. Everyone in this world is one of three kinds. Good Terminator, a bad Terminator, and neutral. You're a good Terminator. And the executive producer who has picked the boat's topic for this week Xenos. <laughs> Thank you very much for your support, gentlemen, and everybody on patreon.com slash sequelizers. We can do this show because you support us, basically. We wouldn't be able to do all this extra cool interseason stuff and bonus episodes that you can get exclusively on Patreon if it wasn't for you. So thank you so much for your support. And yeah, if you'd like to get involved, go and check out the Patreon page. With the intros out of the way, gentlemen, it's a broad topic. We've got some picks. We're going to talk about the general kind of thing and the subject as we often do on these interseason episodes. Where should we start, should we say? 
at the beginning, Jack. At the beginning, when I was born of the universe. Of, I mean, of cinema. The best way to look at it is the fact that um, arguably there are three types of Shakespearean play. Mm. Um, there is a. We've already done our Shakespeare episode, Matthew. We have. I know. Wrong episode. Trage <laughs> tragedy, comedy, and history, and. All three of them draw from arguably real life events, but history more so than others because it's chronicling stuff. It's about education and entertainment in, in one. And that has been with cinema, as with theater, and as with, you know, effectively narrative fiction from the beginning. Telling shit that's true with a twist that makes it more interesting, um, that it isn't just a biography, that it isn't just a, an educational seminar on somebody's life or an event. So based on a true story is such a broad story. I mean, I was talking to the guys about this before we were filming, um, sorry, before recording, and it can be applied to almost every single film, arguably, because things are inspired by real life events because we only have the spectrum of what, unless you're going through a, like a really experimental art house movie. It's like, oh, what about Star Wars? It's like, Star Wars, based on Kurosawa stuff, based on feudal Japan based on real people in history. It's like, that's, you know, you can track these yeah. things back as well as, let's face it, drawing stuff from his own life and things inspired. So it is a, it is a real strange thing that's always been here, basically, and it's still here in different forms. But specifically based on a true story, it, by my definition, is, is when you have that strong line of, this is influenced by real events, so much so that we can actively market it on that, that this is based on a true story. People go, oh shit, this really happened? And... And and not, and not this bullshit lying marketing tactic that often happens that is like, <laughs> this horror movie is based vaguely on a true story. <laughs> like, it's not, though, is it? Texas Chainsaw yeah. Massacre is not literally what happened. Leatherface <laughs> is not a thing. It's like, but but it but it might be in there. Yeah, Ed Gein's story is actually probably more terrifying. Well, exactly, yeah. And they, yeah. they actually end up toning it down, if anything else, compared to the real it's, horrible shit. Again, Game of Thrones, like, oh, God, you couldn't make it up. It's like... No, you literally couldn't because they've taken bits of history and made it, as just, Jack said, just, just English history turned down a bit. <laughs> and, and more flying lizards. A little more. <laughs> Three more. And that's, that's kind of the point. Um, it, it is the arguable divide between what is the difference between a documentary and what is the difference between uh, an adapted sort of narrative event. Um, and the idea is always like, oh, but this isn't a perfect, accurate representation of what happened. It's like, we're not making a documentary here. And also, a documentary is not a perfect, accurate replication of, a, of what so. happened. Yes. Whenever you've got a director, whenever you've got a camera crew who is choosing what to shoot and what not to shoot, they they are applying their lens to you know how it's uh, how it comes across. Mm. Not not to go all gonna... physics on your ass, but it's like the Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. You change the results of a thing by observing it. Correct. The, yeah. the mm. fact that a camera is pointed at a thing and not the other thing that's three feet to its right or left. That is a choice by the cinematographer, by the director, as you were saying, Tim, by the camera crew, that you are choosing to tell this person's story or this area's story or this location story and not the other side or the one next to it or anything like that. Yeah, and that that, that applies to documentaries. It applies to news coverage of mm, stuff. Very true. Um, and it definitely applies to when you're making a film based on a true story because then you are very much, you know, with a documentary, hopefully at least, you are providing unfiltered reality or filtered reality perhaps would be the better term mm. but you're showing things as they actually happened or recreations of what actually happened whereas with based on a true story you get a chance to sit down and go mm, well it'd be better if he actually met this guy like 
when he was a kid because then it would make the story make so much more sense from a narrative point of view it's like yeah yeah but that's that's not reality but you're not saying this is what really happened you're saying it's based on a true story yeah that word based is a lot of heavy fucking lifting um yeah. <laughs> and and that's that's the case of like i mean as jack just said with the science side of things there is a quantifiable truth that exists and our presence next to it as part of it whatever muddies that in the same way that with like Rashomon or like Memento who is the perspective who's telling you these things who's recording of the events as seen in that moment and how they choose to then later remember and or share that moment changes and warps everything so to, to have like oh there's such a faithful adaptation bullshit nothing is <laughs> everyone will be disappointed in some way that's how these things work but we all quantify these things by how close they were to the real events even though it's horseshit yeah, uh, not not to spoil one of my later picks, but I was actually I was doing some research into it earlier, um, and reading bits about the the kind of the real events it was based on and and related stuff to that. And it was interesting to see that even in this this kind of coverage of you know going back to people involved in it and saying like oh you know like what was the first meeting like and you'd have people going oh I think there were like fifteen to twenty people there and then someone else would be like no there were fifty to sixty people there. And it's like these are people remembering the same event. Yeah. And within the course of their lifetime, you know, barely like 30 years ago, and they still, there's such this a wide gulf on what actually happened. Prime example, if we talk about one of the first couple of recordings, the first couple of years of sequelizers, and you talk to ex-members and ourselves, you'll get different accounts every single time. Similarly, if you ask fans of the show or even ourselves, what was the uh, second episode of series four? You're like, oh yeah, that was... um. That's too fast, too furious, and you'll get that moment of pause and like, yeah, no. But if we if we aren't allowed to quantifiably check and you know accurately back this up with the evidence, i.e., our right to recording, then we have no idea. And that's assuming we recorded in order in the first place. That kind of thing. There are so many elements that throw the truth in inverted commas into disrepute. So I wanted to get that out of the way right from the start because it is quintessentially the most important thing about this entire discussion. Because when we talk about the performances, the history, the characters, the individuals, the, the narrative, the events, the changing up of people's nationalities, ethnicities, the location, the timeline, all that shit. There are better ones and there are worse ones. And we tend to grade them on if they're good and entertaining as opposed to if they are factually accurate. So, for example, we um, in a previous, previous episode, damn, Braveheart's a great movie. It's really fun. It's fucking shit history. But that doesn't matter because we still think on a critical level, this is a well-made and structured film. Yeah, it's it, it, judging them by how purely something recreates reality is not really the right criteria to look at these things from because real life is is ugly and imperfect <laughs> quite yeah. a lot of the time. Feelings and uh, moments. And, yeah. And the the great thing about cinema as well is that it can capture things that you know with the combination through things like soundtrack and the way that shots are composed framing editing all those kind of things that you can capture things using the language of film that you wouldn't get just by pointing a camera at it and recording exactly what happened and so oftentimes these films are looking to get to the kind of emotional heart of what was happening to yeah. the people in the moment and 
that is kind of way more important in in whether they're successful in doing that as to whether they are 100% accurate to everything that happened at the time because a you're never going to get that and b this is not the go read a document go watch a documentary go read read a history uh, book just account of things yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly yeah, that, if that's what you're after yeah. do you want that <laughs> It's interesting because we also talked about this in our book adaptations episode we did previously, mm. where you often get the case of the the condensing of a story, as you said, Tim, the condensing of a th- of a theme that is the overall kind of message of a story or a, or a group of characters or whatever, then get condensed into oh, there are actually three separate investigators, but they condensed it down into this one character that Mark Ruffalo plays because that's the one character that you know. We don't have time to do like three backstories in and you know two hour movie, whereas you have an yeah. entire book or whatever it is or an entire <laughs> actual historical fact that doesn't give a shit how many people are in a in a scene or in a backstory or whatever. Yeah. Mm. You get that thing where you get a lot of stuff distilled into one character or oh that scene didn't actually happen there, but when we haven't got the budget to go and fly them off to another country and then come back again because <laughs> he got a call while he was on holiday, but. We're not just flying them off for one scene to Hawaii to film that and then coming back again. So we just had them take the call at home and all that kind of stuff. So they, you get those little twists that don't necessarily matter to the like the hard truth, but they're not factually accurate, but they still play on to the overall themes that we'll talk in, in more detail with our picks later on. A uh, TV and a film example of those two just, just that amuse me is when at the end of a movie they're saying like, well, what happened to all these individuals when they went off and so on and so forth? And one was like Chernobyl, fantastic miniseries we oh, all love very much. Incredible. And this is like Emily Watson's character. This isn't a real person. It's lots and lots of scientists who are working in different things. And the other she, one- She represents me, all of the scientists. Yes. Like, yeah, okay, all sure. into one. It's like, okay. Um, but that's just easier to follow. And the other one that really means me is in uh, Chaplin, um, directed by Richard Attenborough. And it's uh, Anthony Hopkins' character who's been writing a book and is, you know, narrating and effectively just interviewing Chaplin. And it's like, this guy isn't real. And it she says, like, this guy isn't real. We just needed a, like a framing device. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> it's like, it's like just, just say like, well, Anthony Hopkins is here as well. But because we were saying this person did this, they went on to do this. And you're trying to stay with the where are they now kind of shit. The happily ever after stuff, which we'll get back to. Um, but they have to seem so like, we know this one isn't real. It's like, don't, don't draw my attention yeah, to that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it, so much of it also, if you presented things as they actually were, the audience would have questions at the end. You'd be like, oh, hang on, why does, why does uh, the, the, her boss change like halfway through the film? Like, it, what, what happened there? It's like, oh, well, you know, the other boss, like his wife's mother got sick and so they moved back to Connecticut, uh, you know, and so this other guy, it's like, no, that's con- that you're going to have the audience asking questions of like, well, where, where's that guy gone? And that to answer those questions, it's time in your movie to address yeah. things that might not be at all related with the story that you're actually telling. And so sometimes it's easier to just say, well, let's just give her the same boss the whole way through or, or things of that nature. And some of the films that have tried to stick to the truth have been lesser stories because of that. They they Like you said, they will do something like that where the boss changes halfway through and you're like, did you need to do that? It's like, well, it happened in real yeah. life. It's like, does it matter though? Just have boss A be the boss for the whole time and he's the one who gets arrested at the end. It doesn't have to be boss B mm. because this yeah. thing happened. Like, it doesn't matter. It, the fact that the relationship between the employee and the employer is the story that you're telling here. So their experience in the workplace is what matters and the boss is just a figment, a representation, like we were just saying about Chernobyl, a representation of mm. the corporation, the organization, the man and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Whereas like in real life, 
again, like what we're talking about in books and, and documentaries and stuff, like there aren't limits to how many scenes, like there are no budgetary concerns. There are no shit happens that you don't have control of and that doesn't necessarily make sense because life is not a straightforward narrative. That's not how human <laughs> existence works. In some cases it does. And you get the like, the truth is stranger than fiction. It's like, oh my God, you, you couldn't write that. That's crazy. That's unbelievable. I can't believe that thing actually happened in real life. Sometimes that does happen, but you get a lot of instances where, as you said, Tim, there's lots of extra moving parts that don't particularly work well in 90 to 120 minutes on screen. Yeah, and because of this, because of this um, conceit that it's not real, because if it was real, it would be boring and, and erratic and all over the place and too hard to follow. Because of that, there is a sort of well-known truth that everybody seems to disregard or ignore. There's a book by uh, Dennis Bingham that I've got called uh, Whose Lives Are They Anyway? And it's a really good, interesting book about uh, biopics. And in it, he talks about at some point how by the 40s and 50s, you know, the sort of height of Hollywood, it was just a well-known fact that biopics were really run-of-the-mill and kind of tired even though they were still some of the most popular movies being made and still making a you know huge bank and getting all these awards. But when you were making these movies, to, to the creatives, it was just an eye roll of like a, yeah, okay. And even now, we have the same thing. It's like, once you highlight the problem with the formula, you think the formula would break. Think, ah, but now, I've, now I see how this, this is sausage is made. Now <laughs> I see how the joke is made. It doesn't work anymore. Mm -hmm. It's not as funny. Yeah. It's like, then why do you keep telling the same story? And then because, for some reason... This is what we're going to get to. This, for some reason, it comes down to what's popular. And what's popular is what we're told is popular. And then by definition, we make it popular again by sort of self-fulfilling prophecy of it's the only thing we're watching is anything to be advertised to us. So for argument's sake, the formula is almost always, you know, start out from sort of, you have to show like maybe sort of humble beginnings, background sort of thing, growth and strength. And uh, to the person we you know, it's always the, I'm going to have my inspiration of, you know, how I'm going to write this song or the first time I hit a home run, I knew I'd be a baseball star. And oh my God, I just realized when I put this hat on and do this funny mustache, oh, I'm a Charlie Chaplin kind of guy. Um, it, again, the Chaplin movie does that quite well. It's like, how did you find the character? And he's like, oh, well, it, you know, it, 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 it the, the bowl hat just sort of came to me. And he's like, bullshit. And he said, okay, fine, but the truth is really boring. And it's just him running around the sort of costume department trying it on different stuff. And it's like, until you make something that works, that's what it is. And even then, that's a distilled version of that formula. But the formula itself is there. And the formula, most importantly, is dictated to by producers and studios who very much have an agenda to say, this is what we want to talk about because it's what we want you to see. So what we decide is worthy of talking about tends to be what we've always decided is worthy of talking about, making statues of, writing books about. It's just the big, great white men who have formed our society. And then in, you know, other years, it's changed a bit, hopefully a little bit, but it still comes back to who are our great political leaders? Who are our great, you know, sports heroes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's history is written by the winners, right? That's the... What it boils down to a lot of the time. Yeah. And it, it's interesting how quickly we've conflated based on a true story with like biopics. Exactly. Because because so much of like there's relatively few films that are based on a true story that are about a particular moment in history and a great a, a lot more whether it's looking at music, whether it's looking at politics, whether it's looking at kind of war or sports 
any of these kind of things where they are like let's take an individual and follow their journey usually from like like you said humble beginnings through to you know oh they struggle and mm. then maybe they've got like personal problems whether that's you know drug addiction or you know like um, their marriage is falling apart whatever follow them through that and then they have their big creative breakthrough and blah 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 and then they achieve greatness and then we put a thing up at the end that says what they did since <laughs> exactly and a that's it's it's very reductive it's kind of the most reductive because it is taking someone's whole life and trying to make it fit a story rather than just taking like okay here's what happened on this particularly notable day or during this particularly notable year regarding this thing but like you say matt it's about the other people who have interests here and part of that is because actors want to take on this big beefy role they know that playing mm-hmm. stuff based on real life can be a big chance at awards we're, we will definitely Producers get on to awards and especially as we always do on this show rotten tomato scores later on because mm. it is very interesting <laughs> spoiler alert listeners we've got three picks each and i have got the rotten tomato scores for all nine films and we will be talking about that later on because it is it tell it guess right now nothing it, lower than 90 <laughs> percent. you're not far off matthew <laughs> it, it's very much that kind of story because as much as you know, we talk about like some of the most critically acclaimed films ever we've talked about on these shows, and especially with our live streams and the director showdowns and stuff. We just did Spielberg for God's sake at the time of recording. Like, you know, some of the greatest films. Schindler's List is a perfect example of this, based on a true story, kind of Oscar-winning monumental piece of cinema. And so much of this style of filmmaking, whether that is directly the biopic stuff or the biographical, historical drama, comedy, whatever it is, all those kind of combinations really, A, plays well to critics and just does something to us as humans and as storytellers. I think there is an enticing thing. When you see that based on a true story or based on the life of or whatever it is, there is something there that is like, oh, I'm going to learn something as well. Oh, there's an extra little twist here. Like you said, Matt, you gave the example at the beginning there of like people not liking fiction because it's pointless and I want to learn something. <laughs> as as facetious as that is, as some people are nutters and do actually believe that. But having that tie to reality, I think is a really enticing thing subconsciously to us as humans because we have that thing in our brain of just like, well, I'm, we'll learn from history. I will understand people and uh, other mm. cultures and other, you know, other people's experiences so I can learn to live my life better and all that kind of stuff. It's I also think, the arrogance of what would I do in that situation? Oh, That's absolutely. It draws yeah, yeah. us straight in. Like, oh, yeah. Captain Phillips. Christ, I don't even know what I'd go. They came on my boat. I don't know what I'd do. I wonder what he does. I'll just watch. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I think that, really lends itself to critical acclaim and uh, i'm not saying everything everything that's based on true story is good of course i'm not there's a bunch of shit as well there's a bunch of there's a lot of lot of lot of bad biopics and and based on true story films that you probably haven't heard of because they were a big pile of shit but all the big ones you've heard of are like oscar winning 90 plus percent on rotten tomatoes type stuff that is a lot of the stuff and again to tease our picks later on that's pretty much true for all of our picks later. I, I have a question, actually, for you guys. Yes. Are there any historical events or, or, or figures of note that either haven't been on portrayed on film yet or have been and the film was really disappointing that you that, that particularly either you really want to see or you're like so gutted that they, they got a film about it and they 
completely fucked it up. Fuck tons. I was going to um, say, there's loads of stuff. Our history is yeah. very interesting. <laughs> history is neglected because, again, depends. we tell the same stories about World War II over and over and oh, over yeah. and over and over, yeah. but from a very specific angle and very specific fronts. I mean, Gallipoli is a, a fantastic movie in, in its own right, but because it's about Turkey and Australia, it's like, wait, what? Yeah. This isn't World War One. World War One is on the front in France, you fool. Exactly. There's only one, <laughs> well, you know. In interestingly enough, one of my picks does touch on that and does kind of mm. tell, not sort of the other side, it's not a, you know, n Nazi film, but it does tell parts of the the war and one stuff. of my picks is <laughs> exactly yeah we've both kind of got that in our in our picks here matt and the fact that again mm. i know i keep coming back to this but the fact that so many of spielberg's movies with all these critically acclaimed things three out of the top four of our brackets were world yes. war ii movies so one of the one of the listeners uh sorry one of the viewers of the live stream pointed that mm. out in the chat and was like it's only jurassic park that's not a world war ii movie it's like fuck you're right yeah and there really is this kind of <laughs> Like you said, we're so used to seeing particularly the wars because oh, our politicians from both here and the US fucking love going on about the wars and what a brilliant yeah. man Churchill was to lead us into the freedom, the blah, blah, and the bollocks and the all that shit. And you see it as like, yeah, the Brits were heroic and the Americans were heroic and that's it. It's like, everyone want to talk about Russians? No? <laughs> no, you don't want to talk about the fact that we were allies with the Russians, and who, who kind of was in Berlin? Kind of ignored, when it fell. kind of ignored a bunch of genocide that was happening because they happened to be mm. on our side. We know, yep. we, we're just not going to talk about that. That's fine. That's fine. You want to talk about the Italians? Okay, nobody wants to talk about Italians. Cool, cool, mm -hmm. cool. We're just gonna. It was England and America versus Germany. Oh, and sort of Japan, maybe. Like, there's so many other stories and so many other perspectives yeah. as we were touching on earlier that could be told and that could be really interesting. One for me. That is is sort of getting made, and I think it's going to be terrible. Is the story of Vince McMahon, the oh, man, fucking hell. the man yes. who is the chairman <laughs> of World Wrestling Entertainment, the WWE. It is currently in pre-production by WWE Studios. Oh wow, that went biased. Which, it's like a FIFA movie. Exactly. The bias there is not what I want. I want to see the wrestler. I want to see grimy, horrible, fucking you know <laughs> truths. And to be fair, there there are doc there is a documentary called Dark Side of the Ring that does exactly oh, yeah. this yeah. on Vice, and it is some of the best like documentaries I've watched in years because it it is no holds barred to coin a wrestling phrase about subjects that it tackles people it offends in the industry it's not like oh we can't talk about the owner of the company because he'll fire us or whatever it's like no fuck you this guy probably murdered a guy and you covered it up you motherfuckers it's like oh wow okay and wrestling and big industry like entertainment industry stuff is full of juicy crazy shit like that and loads of it i don't think we'll see the light of day there's loads of mm. like maybe he killed a guy i don't know Maybe he was gay. Maybe he was like the first guy to do this thing. Nobody knows because those subjects weren't talked about or they were covered up at the time for political reasons and all this kind of stuff. I would love to see a kind of unleashed, unchained, unrestrained biopic of Vincent Kennedy McMahon. Because he is, <laughs> for those of you who don't know, he is a fucking nutter. And I don't mean that in a like, oh, he's a quirky billionaire. As in... <laughs> He doesn't like people sneezing because he sees it as a sign of weakness and people have been fired for sneezing in his meetings. God damn. He is mental. He is a billionaire and he is mental and he's been a mental billionaire for like 50 years at this point. And he like betrayed his dad 
to become owner of WWF and all this crazy shit and lied in court about steroid use and all this mad stuff. And it's like, probably the story's never going to be told like in a big like blockbustery kind of way they sort of did like oh fighting with my family yeah it's the story of how the <laughs> wwe saved this poor little girl from norwich and brought her into the mainstream they there's the rock <laughs> he's in it he's a wrestler was a wrestler he's a, he's an actor now look you like the rock <laughs> it's like that loads of that is not how that works as a man yeah. from norwich and a wrestling fan i'm like i know <laughs> stuff like that didn't happen <laughs> Because you get it twisted, and like we said, there's a, there's going to be a, a bias, there's going to be a perspective to it. But yeah, I want I want to see the Vincent Kennedy McMahon. I think that's actually probably inevitable. Shortly after his death, kind of thing. Yeah, and that'd be very. He's, he's not going to retire. He's going to die as chairman of WWE yeah. for sure. I mean, he's like eighty at this point, anyway. I think. Yeah, it's going to be a question of like not only after he's died, but after. People who he's basically like handpicked are no longer in control of WWE. Yeah, his daughter and Triple H. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and even then, it'll be yeah. like we're like we're confident enough we can make this film without a really crushing lawsuit. You know. Yeah. Um, I have a hand. Well, just two, just two, just two. I want to talk about the first disappointing one is something that came out very recently. It's called Stardust. Uh, it's the the Bowie biopic. Oh, yes. It doesn't yeah. have the rights to any Bowie music. Who <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> thought that was a good? What idea? were they thinking? Yeah, yeah, it's apparently no no permission from the estate. All very bad. It's, it's not a good mm. movie at all. The other one is W, um, which oh, was yeah. Oh, yeah. the Oliver Stone biopic, and I was expecting something along the lines of Vice, or maybe even something like it, like his Nixon one, which was sort of quite fair and honest, but also quite mm. you know you know attacking in what it was doing. But W was very apologetic, inadvertently. Just like, just, I say, I, and, and Stone even said, like, I wanted to get in this guy's head. I'm a narrative storyteller first, and you know, the, the guy I am outside with my opinions of America is second. I wanted to tell the story, and it's like I, I respect that. But you sympathised him, and you made him sympathetic, and no, not him the man, him the Josh Brolin version of the man. Mm. And because of the performance, and the performance was great. I, like Sam Rockwell in Vice, you know, you see who this person is, but it's. Eh. It's a really tricky one because you have to come with an agenda to say the truth as it is, not this neutral, on the fence, nothing. I mean, it's tricky because he's such a buffoon. Yeah. And I think yeah. this is the problem that we're going to get when we start getting more and more cinematic portrayals of Trump. Oh, that's coming. Is that he's such a clownish figure that... You mean outside of Home Alone, right? Well, yes. <laughs> Um, he's such a clownish figure that sin the, the any kind of performances or, or films are going to have to represent that, and it and it risks covering up all the awful stuff that they either did or allowed to happen yeah. essentially in their name. Yeah, I think I, th I think um, Vice is probably better because it has a clearer focus on on that stuff, but, and also yeah. because Dick Cheney is just a lot less. He's he's more he's he's more straight villain basically. Yes. Yeah. Talking to the side of his mouth like pulling out toenails yeah. and shit. That kind of thing is like some more detestable. Whereas the <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna have some wings now. It's like uh, he's just an idiot, and that's what I think would happen yeah. with a Trump biopic or Trump based on a true story story. It would be like you'd either get like James Wood playing Rudy Giuliani, which is a fucking amazing <laughs> movie. Um, by that I mean it's dog shit. Or you get something that is like, well, obviously he was mentally unhinged. I mean, you mm -hmm. can't blame him. It's like, no, you can blame him. And you can blame the people who put him there. But the difference is yeah. if you put it too 
it's making it's putting the humanity in something and by doing so it you need to either like like the last king of scotland for example forrest whisker playing Idi Amin. he's fucking terrifying in that movie yep and it, but also very very charming which Idi Amin was he was outwardly charming as a dictator as a despot but also mm. a fucking monster and i think that's the thing you need to capture but again you don't tend to get that kind of directness with a biopic that is about a let's say british or american leader Churchill's yeah, yeah. always like, well, he saved us from <laughs> the Nazis, so it's fine. Yeah, mm. there, there's a let's let's not talk about all the atrocities in Africa mm, and yeah. India. Well, the, in in the Gary Oldman one, uh, the darkest hour, they do. And he goes, you don't understand. I was very very drunk. <laughs> and, it's, <laughs> and it's just like I was it, on the fast yeah. show. Because he's like, you don't know what it was like reading the country and the men. I I think about it every day. I'm sure you do, Gary Oldman, this amazing performance. But Churchill fucking didn't. Mm. So yeah. The history and whose variation of the history and whose account of history is vital for the story. You have to pick your fucking story, pick your audience, I think, with these things when constructing from the ground up. And when you go into, obviously they can evolve, that you can go in with the best intention to make something that's a pure, oh God, you know what I really want to do? I want a story about Robert E. Lee and I want to make him the hero. So the, the Confederate general? Yeah. <laughs> okay, you can do that. And by the way, every version of every Civil War thing does do that. Robert E. Lee is always like, the South is disgraceful with the discrimination and the, you know, slavery rules and the seeding of the Union. It wasn't about that. It was about the slavery. Robert E. Lee was a gentleman and a general. Now, you, you may say all you like about the men fighting in that war, but Robert E. Lee, no, 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 I will not hear a word said against that man. And it's like, right, why? <laughs> He was fighting for state rights, Matthew. The state's state rights rats. to own a slave. Yeah. Um, just to, to quickly say, my my disappointing one, and this is one that's yes. actually had a film made about it, Ooh. but apparently the film, I haven't seen the film because the film is apparently dreadful, mm -hmm. which is uh, the life of uh, baseball player Mo Berg, oh, okay. uh, who was an entirely average baseball player, but <laughs> also a genius who was involved in spying efforts during World War II wow! uh, and met with German nuclear physicists uh, in an attempt to disrupt the Nazi nuclear that, program. That was a twist I was not expecting. That's to see a story, him. Tim. Yeah. Uh, and he had a film made about him uh, called uh, The Catcher Was a Spy. Oh, I'm not sure I like that title. <laughs> starring Paul Rudd. Um, what? It's got a pretty. What? It's got a pretty good cast. It's got Mark oh, Strong. It's got Jeff Daniels. Yeah. Oh, I do uh, know this movie. Guy Pearce, Hiroyuki Sonada, Paul Giamatti. Yeah. Like all sounds decent. Apparently, it's dreadful. What the fuck? And uh, such a shame because he was. Yeah, he is one of the most fascinating people. Yeah. Um, he was called like the 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 brainiest guy in baseball, the strangest man ever to play baseball. Mm. He'd read like 10 newspapers a day. He was a um, could speak multiple languages. Fascinating figure. Um, but apparently the film about him is dreadful, I'm, which is, you know, that is what happens sometimes. That doesn't surprise me because again, uh, Operation Finale, for example, is another example. I saw the thing that advertises like, oh, Ben Kingsley's involved and it's Oscar Isaac is about, you know, and, and Nick Kroll of all people giving a serious performance of Melanie Laurent. And it's like, oh wow, what's it about? It's like, what's well, about, you know, Eichmann, it's like oh the the Nazi, mm. the Holocaust sort of you know mastermind. It's like yeah him, and um, and he's being tracked down by Mossad agents. It's like this sounds really good, and all the people like sound like they're fucking A list actors who've been drawn into this film, and you're like yeah it's it's fine at best, it's average. And you're like yeah, oh. I remember seeing the trailers for that and being like oh this looks good, yeah. and then it just disappeared. Yeah, that's the problem with these things that they are as as 
you mentioned earlier the idea that actors go, oh, I love me a bit. I won an award. I'll have that. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, especially considering like Meryl Streep, 10 of her Oscars are for portraying someone who is real. Yeah. <laughs> As in really exists. 10 of her Oscars. What a sentence that is. Yeah. Oh, I should have to clarify. Oscar nominations. My apologies. Oscar nominations. Oh, oh, oh. But oh, still, that's okay. the same fucking thing because let's face it, she's Hollywood royalty. But yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, there is definitely a reward for it. And also, if we say like, here are three films. Which one are you going to see? You know, here's a huge, you know, Marvel style blockbuster. Okay. Here's a story that's something based on a true story. Okay, fine. And here's some sort of speculative fiction just as a made up thing. Okay. Most people will go, well, I'll go the thing I'm most familiar with, which is the blockbuster at this point. And they say, well, I want something different. What are you going to go with then? The middle one. Do you want to go with the one you know nothing about? No, I know nothing about it. And that's how the film industry works and television <laughs> and music and everything fucking else with art. You Obviously, people seek out things that are challenging or people like you, dear listeners, who take our recommendations and think, oh, that sounds cool. I'll go with that. But even then, the majority of just regular cinema goers will go with what they recognize. And if they go, holy mm. fuck, a James Brown movie. I know James Brown music. I'll go along and like it. And in this case, it's like, oh, Chadwick Boseman did a great fucking job as James Brown. It's like, yeah. But they'll also say like, oh shit, a Lifetime movie where fucking um, Lindsay Lohan is playing Elizabeth Taylor. And it's like, oh fuck me. Uh, do I want to see this? No, but apparently it's like the, one of the second or third highest viewed thing on their channel. It's like, great. We, we all get sucked in for some reason. Which leads us actually really closely to the casting of these things. I mean, obviously the nature of like, you know, who we're going to portray. We're going to portray Genghis Khan. We're going to, or Genghis Khan. We're going to portray all these like famous people throughout time. This Mickey Mantle. Oh my God, that's amazing. Who are we going to get? We're going to Idi Amin. Oh great. Who are we going to cast in these roles? Fuck. Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan. I guess, I guess John Wayne. So I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> what the fuck? Or Arnold Schwarzenegger. What, 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 what? Um, yeah, th there's so many examples of like miscast moments and perfectly cast moments. A miscast one, in my opinion, uh, Nina. It tends to be the films you don't know about. Nina Simone, a fucking amazing woman in general, mm. not just an artist mm. and singer, but fucking amazing presence and talent. Such an outspoken individual played by Zoe Saldana. And again, she's a fantastic actor. But she looks very, very different. And mm, I remember there was a, a fair bit of controversy about that at the time over sort of colorism in uh, in cinema and in culture in general. Precisely. Of like Nina Simone was a very dark skinned African American yeah. woman. Yes. Um, and Zoe Saldana is much, you know, lighter complexion. That's right. And yeah, are we really picking the best person yeah. right, to portray this? Originally, woman? it was Mary J. Blige they were going with and said, oh, okay, we can see this. she's a talented singer. We can make this work. That's great. You know, she's a bigger woman as it were she's not like mm. fucking huge or anything but yes it makes sense it's like Zoe Saldana it's like you want to go over this slim thing it's like yeah but we have to make her work so her hair isn't going to match at all so we'll give her a wig it's like sure that's part of the process of becoming another performance and we'll give her a fake nose and effectively a tooth but like enhanced thing and it's like mm. and darken her skin it's like this sounds very bad so far and mm -hmm. really offensive and also she still looked nothing like Nina fucking Simone. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, oh, uh, Christ. It's something we'll definitely touch on later in a future episode. There's a lot of tease for you, mm. listeners. Where you can go for exact replication. Like we talked about, you stick to the truth and you can you know, take that similar approach in the characterization of a real life person. You do all the makeup, you do all the prosthetics, you do all the crazy stuff, and then 
get the person to look most like, oh my God, I can't believe it's not them on screen. It looks exactly like that person from history. I know their real face and you will see like the, you won't believe it was this guy and this guy. And there's a side-by-side thing in BuzzFeed in a couple of years where it's like 10 actors who look exactly (laughs) like the historical figures they played in that movie once. Or you go for a thing where you capture the essence of a person and you go for a thing where you don't look exactly like them. You don't even sound like them. But you're able to capture their energy in a room, the way they convey themselves in public, the way they are on stage in front of a crowd, in battle, whatever it is. You're able to capture them and distill that. Again, like we're saying with themes and stuff like that, you don't need to tell beat for beat, minute for minute, and you don't need to have everyone wear prosthetics to give an amazing performance of a real person. And on the other side of that, you get people who look exactly like them and then the performance is shit. (laughs) Yeah. And you get people who were like, I think the perfect example you gave Matt earlier is Josh Brolin's George W. Bush. Mm. It's like, Josh Brolin doesn't look anything like George W. Bush. (laughs) He's way handsomer and like way more charming and stuff. And granted, he does do the whole kind of like the the little Texas accent kind of thing and does all the whole kind of thing. Because Josh Brolin has that kind of twang to his voice anyway. But he just doesn't capture the kind of bumbling, as we touched on earlier, that kind of weird does this guy even know what he's talking about kind of energy, which is so integral to maybe not the real George W. Bush. Maybe he was a fucking genius behind the scenes. We'll never know. But the public perception of that and the one we saw on TV while he was one of the most powerful people in the world was this bumbling fucking idiot who was now watch this drive and all that kind of (laughs) stuff basically became a fucking meme before memes were a thing like 20 years ago. And uh, the thing I really, really love is seeing... A performer I I really love, like, disappear into a role and you kind of forget. I think Forrest Whitaker is a perfect fucking example of that. You're watching that film and I forget I'm watching Forrest Whitaker and then I'll come back like, oh yeah, there'll be like 20 minutes later, be like, oh fuck, yeah, that is Forrest Whitaker. Oh god, this is so good. This is a brilliant thing. And I think people can often get stuck into nailing a voice, nailing the look, nailing or whatever, and forget about the essence of the character and the person they want to capture. Yeah, and I think there's actually a few key examples uh what one or two in the same fucking movie <laughs> straight out of compton oh fucking uh, love really that movie. well done matthew yeah i yeah, love that movie that's a fantastic film and i i, I remember watching this like who the fuck have they got playing fucking ice cube this guy looks exactly like ice cube like, this, this is crazy insane. and you're like it's his son oh well fucking obvious now it makes complete <laughs> fucking... but then also it's like well you know uh jason mitchell plays easy for example but they did you know his son easy son want to play his real life son audition yeah. for the role like, yeah no because he didn't have thing, and that's the whole point it's like one of them could work as an actor one of them couldn't that's not not intended to be a discredit against that individual it's just to do what we need to do we need this and again jason mitchell looked fucking fantastic in that part and and just as a as a little parallel, as it were, I find it interesting that we will get things like, including myself, the analysis of a discussion of how deep someone goes into a role. Holy shit, is this the first trailer? Yeah. That's Christian Bale as fucking Dick Cheney. <laughs> oh, oh, God, uh, Christian Bale. I'm going to make sure... Um do it my way and it's like the inflection the manners he's got I've, it down I've, I've put on 60 pounds yeah. of prosthetics <laughs> no 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 I just ate cheeseburgers yep. for the last this, nine months all this fucking weight and things. It's, that's, that's he's lost and gone but at the same time 
as much as Gary Oldman gives an amazing performance as Winston Churchill, as much as Meryl Streep gives a great performance as a version of Margaret Thatcher, all these sort of interesting things we think we know from a certain perspective, as much as even even like on TV, the same sort of things, because of Thatcher and Gillian Anderson doing a fantastic fucking job. I was about to mention mm. that, comparing Streep and Anderson's versions yeah. of Thatcher and stuff. Yeah. Well, with all that in mind... There was a time where you would just find somebody who looked like them who could act. And the one that... Sometimes they don't act. Yeah, the one that got me recently was a tweet based off the trailer of Ridley Scott's new movie, House of Gucci. Oh, yeah. And someone said, like, oh, these are all great. I mean, yeah, uh, Lady Gaga's doing a great job. I think this would be really interesting. Drivers, driver, fuck's sake, and Pacino. And then someone said... Holy, f that's that motherfucker is Jared Leto. What the fuck? And somebody says, "Do you remember the days when someone just find a guy who looked a bit like him who could do that role rather than just we've got to make Jared Leto look like this because it's Jared Leto?" Yeah. It's like why? It's like because he'll give a great performance. It's like, You've got the real firecracker. It's like that's why you spend so much on prosthetics. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, the one that really jumped out to me recently was when the first. It was, I don't think any official pictures have come out, but like behind the scene pictures of, I believe it's a TV series for Hulu mm. with Sebastian Stan and Lily James oh. as Tommy Lee and, Tommy Lee Pamela, and yeah. uh, Pamela Anderson. And it's like, they, it's scary how much they've managed to transform themselves yeah. Yeah. into yeah. those people, especially like Lily James, who just, you kind of basically just associate with period dramas, yes. like British yes. period dramas. And seeing her as Pamela Anderson is just like slightly mind-blowing well, this is the word this is the word that people always use some critics hate using this word but the word is transformative no oh, yes. transformative transformative you performance <laughs> whether, you, you, whether they get lost in the role the t word man it's 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 always like you know oh i can't believe this person played this role they were so brave to play this role of this individual oh, yes and then you end up like i remember i think it was like both sean penn and richard attenborough when they were collecting awards for gandhi and and um milk respectively saying that this isn't really just for the performance this is for the you know for everything that harvey milk did and you're like Sure. No, I agree with that. That makes sense. But that's not what the film was doing and not what you were doing. Are we awarding him posthumously the Oscar through you? Yeah, What's we're giving the here? real yeah. person the Oscar. <laughs> that was, that's again, not how that works. A transformative performance because Sean Penn played a likable individual. <laughs> um, but then also, this is the, the last thing I want to touch on before we get to our own picks, is the based on a true story. And there's a big chapter. I mentioned this book earlier by Bingham. And it is the implication of based when you want to sort of start off doing a biopic, kind of, or start talking about a real person or a real event or a real thing, and then you kind of have to pivot to fiction for kind of legal purposes. And that's where you get things like Citizen Kane, one of arguably mm. the greatest movies of all time, based on William Randolph Hearst. And, mm. it's, and then Mank is an accompaniment, so that thing being an actual sort of almost like biographical thing, but based on very different accounts and such. And it becomes this idea of like, well... Citizen Kane is based on a true story. It's like, no, it's not, not really. It's like, you're not saying that because you don't want to get fucking sued. And even then they thought, <laughs> they saw through the thin veil of what you were doing and they went after your ass. There's, there's a fascinating one of those recently, actually. Mm -hmm. Film that's just about to come out, just come out uh, as we record this, Stillwater, oh, the oh, Matt yeah. Damon yeah. film, where it is, a, again, one of these like, fictionalized so we didn't have to pay for the rights yeah. uh versions of and and so we could turn the dad into an action hero mm. um of the amanda knox story essentially um and then 
like just as it was coming out, Amanda Knox basically came out and said like they never like and and to the point where the filmmakers are literally saying in interviews, yeah, we based this on that story. Yeah. Even though the film itself doesn't acknowledge it in the marketing of it, the director and other people associated with it are saying it's based on it. And then she has come out and said like, hey, you never asked for any kind of permission. Like you never talked to me about this. And it's essentially my life and these horrible things that happened to me that you're basing it on. Like, go fuck yourself, basically. Green Book. <laughs> Whereas, yeah. like, Mahershala Ali does a performance. I know that's a different thing because it's trying to say it's one person's version of the story, i.e. Viggo Mortensen's character. It's like, oh, it's just my nice dad and he drove this guy around. It's like, nope. The, the family of Mahershala Ali's character is like saying, no, he was a racist asshole who just drove out and he was not like, oh, he'll teach me how to eat chickens. Like, where the fuck is all this revisionist shit coming from? And it's like, it's it's the whole like, the, the, the danger of the film becoming the history. The events that we know collectively, and I know we're all thinking to ourselves, no, I'm above that. Fuck you, you're not, because none of us are. What do you know about the sinking of the Titanic? You know most of it from James Cameron. Um, and it's like, I know the history. He was very detailed. He did all the research. He went down in the submarine. I saw it. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you read a book afterwards? Did you like do anything? Did you go to a museum to like back up your evidence? No, 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 no. I didn't need to. I saw the film. There did, it is. did you watch any of James Cameron's other documentaries about <laughs> time going travel. to find the Titanic? God, no. Why would I do that? What a terrible idea. <laughs> yeah. His, I was say his documentary about time travel was <laughs> <It's like, laughs> like, the Terminator. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. And it's unfortunate because, you know, so much of history, as we said, kind of at the start of this, focuses on great white men and their stories. And it's essentially kind of like Hollywood becomes this sort of secondary filter of it. Mm -hmm. Because to start with, those are the only stories that we tend to learn about. And then you have, okay, so we've got the, we've got, you know, a hundred, a hundred great historical stories that we could tell, but we only learn about 50 of them because of, you know, bias and, and stuff like that and then hollywood's only going to select 10 of those and of those 10 maybe one of those might be about say a person of color or a woman and will it be a woman or a person of color directing it will it be you know written by the people involved in it um and so there's this that, continual that's a topic we've touched on a couple of times already as well when we mm. sequelize stuff or like well this makes sense to be told by a person who actually experienced a similar thing my director is a woman. My yeah. director is a person of color. Mm. There are certain stories, like you said, that make so much more sense to not be told by a bunch of white dudes. And I see mm. the irony here that it's three white <laughs> dudes talking on a podcast <laughs> and get ready because we're going to talk about other cultural insensitivity <laughs> subjects that three white dudes probably shouldn't be talking about on a podcast. But we'll, we'll handle it with respect. But we'll try yeah, to. I think they're... We'll try to as much as we can. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. I like to think that we've set that example already on the show that we're able to tackle difficult subjects and do it from our perspective without trying to tread on, you know, the perspectives mm. of the people who experienced it. But yeah, I think that, mm. that's a really interesting point, Tim, that we're seeing more of that now in cinema, which is mm. fantastic. We're yes, seeing it's slowly improving, yeah, not yeah. a, a fast enough pace. And I think each of us has like a film that is directed by. Um, like a person of color or mm -hmm. you know, so a, a marginalized pers person from a marginalized community 
about like history that has happened to them essentially but there are so many of these like untold stories and unfortunately a lot of them get the kind of what i think of as like the hidden figures treatment uh... where it's like it is great that this story is finally being told but like so often and, and you know green book is another example of like do we really need it being told by like a white director and often framed around the experiences of like the one white character in it kind of thing and hopefully that's slowly changing and there's more awareness of that but it's very slow and there's a whole big catalogue of films out there that don't have that uh, yeah. perspective today's episode is brought to you by db db is a scandinavian brand that makes backpacks and bags to help people on the move stay ready for anything from the streets to the peaks db's gear is travel tested by some of the world's best athletes adventurers and creators over the past decade db has designed and developed released and refined the best bags in the market with DB's patented hookup system, stop laughing you, uh, you are able to attach smaller products to your backpack, roller, or tote. I don't know about you guys, but I am often with a backpack whenever I'm traveling around hauling stuff, and it makes a huge difference having a, a, a quality backpack as in, instead of something lumpy or inaccessible when you're on the go. So we are teaming up with DB to exclusively offer our listeners 10% off your next purchase by using the code POD10, that's P-O-D-10, or going to the link in our show notes. DB, it's time to move on, time to get going. I thought you should have sung the end of that, Tim. Time to move on, time to get going. If they, uh, if they want singing uh, adverts, they need to pay us a little bit more. Ding, 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 <laughs> motherfucker. That's fair. Not from me. I will sing anything. That's fine. Yeah. Support for Sequelizers is also brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. It's trusted by over 2 million men worldwide, and you can join the movement for all your below-the-waist grooming needs. Get 20% off and free delivery with the code SEQUEL at manscaped.com. Here is a true story for you. Nicking your balls hurts. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> so if you are taking care of your downstairs garden, uh, you want to use the best topiary tools that you can get hold of manscaped's redesigned electric trimmer the lawn mower 3.0 is now available in the uk it's their third generation trimmer it features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents it's got an led light that illuminates grooming areas for closer and more precise trimming and it has a 7000 rpm motor with quiet stroke technology um, it's a really nice package, the the box that you get from uh, Manscaped. It's got wonderful uh, deodorants and lotions and stuff in there, as well as the trimmer. Really nice, stylish charging stand that's uh, USB-powered. Have it on your mantelpiece. It's it's delightful. It's stylish. It is. It's a, basically Excalibur. a piece of art. <laughs> and you can get 20% off and free delivery with the code SQL at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free delivery at manscaped.com and use the code SEQUEL. Your balls and us will thank you. Thank you. That's your balls, not me. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you, this was a transformative performance as Tim's balls, Matthew. That was amazing. I would like to thank everyone who was nominated in this category, but we all know balls is a brave thing to be, and I thank you for this award. Good night. Matt had to undergo... Almost seven minutes of makeup to play a pair of testicles. I just got into a bin bag. <laughs> I have so many questions, but we need to move on. <laughs> That's how I got my award. <laughs>
Oh dear. Well, as I mentioned earlier on in the show, we do in fact have some picks to talk about in more detail, as we often do on these interseason episodes. And there's a mixture of things. As, as Tim mentioned earlier, there's a real mixture of people from different backgrounds, different cultures being talked about in these biographical, biopic kind of movies, and then a few other things that you might not expect. And of course, it's Matt's. There's probably something you haven't seen and haven't heard of, and, yep. and in a different language as well. So, yeah. <laughs> yep. Matt, why don't we kick off with you with one of your, yep. with your first pick, please, Mr. Stockton. Okay, so I've got a theme to mine. Oh, is it based on a true story? It's that they're all based on a true story on a boat. What? No. <laughs> Tying it in. No, um, I've gone for first-hand accounts of political turmoil and change. Oh, interesting. Um, and I've gone for three separate things. I've gone for an individual who, uh, sort of a different spectrums. the idea of somebody who is swept up in political change, somebody who is an observer to it happening and kind of complicit in it and somebody who will become the architect of some huge political change so these are very very different individuals and different parts of history and as jack has kind of teased none of these motherfuckers are in the english language <laughs> so first off we're going with um actually an adaptation of a graphic novel of the same name but it's also still a biographical piece about this individual uh, talking about their history the film is persepolis from 2007 the protagonist, protagonist is the right word, is Marjan Satrapi, or Margie as she's called. And she is a French Iranian living in the sort of late 70s in Iran, when just this huge, huge revolution happens in Iran. So you don't know much about Middle Eastern history. Allow it, a white a man on a podcast to explain it to you. Please, please, <laughs> yes. No, I'm saying go watch Persepolis. Because again, it's a first-hand account of it happening. And it's her account. And it's fascinating because we all see Iran as we've seen a lot of these countries from how we've experienced them. We see Ayatollahs and we see um, oppression and we see very strict religious codes and things. And we see all this stuff because it's what we've it's all we've known. So, so to see her talk about growing up young and liking punk music is fucking baffling. And it shouldn't be. It should be like a normal, like, well, it wasn't always like this. And it's like, well, it became this huge, you know, the Shah of Iran was taken out by this, um, this Iranian revolution in 1979. And just the idea that it wasn't safe for her. So she had to go study in France. And it just details her existence. And it goes from just how she's just a very normal kid. And as she grows up, the changes that she's seen to her country and how, you know, she's got to run somewhere because she's late. I think it's for class. And the police pull her over and say, what are you doing? This is indecent. She said, well, stop looking at my ass. And she keeps running. Um, and it's like, I'm going to, and she's driving with three friends in the car. And she's, I'm going to do something uh, quite crazy. I'm going to take my headdress off. And like, you wouldn't fucking dare. And she does. And they go, woo because they're living it. And it's like, yeah, because it's a very oppressive society, but it wasn't always like this fundamentalism, the Islamic fundamentalist sort of rise and the strict Islamic rule is very different. And then she goes to stay in Paris and Austria for a while and she lives with, with Catholic nuns. And it's like, you know, just as much oppression in a different way. And she goes into depression and it just covers a lot of her story, but it's told by her. And the art form and how it's done is magnificent. It's it's just this really beautiful, simplistic art style because it's an anime movie, and just charts I mean, you just, her experience. You know, obviously, it's an anime movie. Like, I think I'm pretty sure I mentioned that, animation. I just, uh, no, but I mean, like, that's an incredibly unique and unusual thing did, for yeah, a biopic. I mention that, like, yeah. How many other like that's true. politically charged biographical movies, like 
It's also a cartoon, by the way. Like, sorry, I, yeah, what? I, sh- I should you have totally just that. fucking yeah. brushed over mm-hmm. that, which I think is like the thing. One of the things that initially drew me to it because I'd heard how great the graphic novel is, mm. and then it's like, wait, are they doing like it's it's real serious and like they're actually telling a true story, but it's a cartoon. What a weird choice! But I think that's part of why this yeah. film is so fucking good. I think that plays into how, like you said, the art style and how visually how it's presented could only be done mm. in many ways using this kind of, you know, based on the art of the graphic novel style that they do. It's fascinating. And it's, it's such a... And it, it would be much easier, like, from a typical kind of filmmaking perspective to be like, oh, just shoot a very low-budget kind of, you know, live-action thing yeah, actors you've never heard of, all this kind of stuff. The, the typical kind of stuff you would expect from, oh, it's non-English language, whatever, you know. It's mm. this it's this indie project nobody's ever heard of. The fact that they went out of their way, and animation is expensive as fuck to make, by the way, <laughs> unless you're literally yeah. doing it yourself. Having an anime animated side of things and having animators and voice actors and mm. all this kind of stuff is such an interesting process apart the films and such a unique thing in in the topic that we're discussing on the episode i think yeah entirely and i get jack's entirely right i glaze over the fact that this is a animated film versus i mean waltz with bashir does the same sort of thing and you're like what's this story about it's gonna be some harrowing fucking shit boys strap the fuck in but this one is so it's it's weird because it's it's endearing it's light-hearted but in there's a bonus episode we did recently for patrons where tim highlighted a girl who walks home and walks home alone at night and just the visually striking silhouettes of a shador for example just this face mm. appearing in this is um in this black outfit and the way that the uh this film is animated really drills down on that and so the, com- the comparison with the french nuns for other the Austri- austrian nuns for example is 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 magnificent because it's like ah oppressive people <laughs> uh, tell me what to do from religious purposes and yeah persepolis is a, is a magnificent movie it it, it changed a, the way i looked at things at the time because i think it must have been like 23 24 when i was yeah 23 when this film came out I, I i loved it then i love it now very very much and i'm always surprised and shocked people haven't seen it but then also i don't know if it's i, I hope it's on streaming services i hope it's readily available but you never can tell with these things but yeah i, I recommend it highly and i'm glad that you got uh, uh, jack you've seen it right and, and tim have you I have, I yeah, yeah, I, yeah i've seen it yeah that, that pleases me that pleases me a lot <laughs> It's not available on any streaming service in the UK at the moment, as far as I can tell. Mm. It has been on Prime, I believe, over the last couple of years or so, but it mm. is not currently on anything. Uh... It's, it's the kind of thing that might show up on like four, Channel Four. Oh, in definitely, the UK, yeah, yeah. almost you know, definitely, on yes. a fairly regular basis. If you're yeah. or on Film Four, yes, um, yes, if you're a British viewer, so it's worth it's worth keeping an eye out for. And I think, yeah, like you say, it's really good. It's a fascinating look at it because it is this essentially a child's view of this revolution happening mm. and the things that are important to her at the time of like not being able to i think there's like the, the bit where she's like dancing to michael jackson and told like she's yes. not allowed to do that anymore kind of thing yes and the black market trying to get these things like do you want yeah these, these it sort of re- reminds me of that uh, i can't remember what it's from but it was uh, someone like someone's diary entry and it's like went to the youth center like Darren didn't talk to me. Like wore wore these shoes that made me look like an idiot. Oh, also, man walked on the moon. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's when you're in the, when you're a teenager, your world is the most important thing, and everything mm. outside of it is either part of it. Yeah, I get it. And also, the thing I didn't really touch on as well, very briefly, she directed this movie. Mm. I mean, she co-directed with Vincent uh, Parano, who who was like the the animation director, but she still directed it. So it's mm. as first account as you can get, and obviously that's still a perspective thing, as we mentioned earlier. But it's her story 
her life, told her through her voice and literally her hand as she's saying like, no, no, draw it this way, animate it this way and then mm. brought it to life. So it's about as one-to-one a based on a true story thing as I think you can imagine because it's literally yes. the narration of someone giving you an anecdotal story of this happened to me. Yeah, but that's a bit crazy, isn't it? No, it happened and, to me, motherfucker. And, and like we talked about, having the perspective of Muslim women in mm-hmm. film is so unusual. And like I said, we touched upon this when Tim talked about A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. The fact that both of these movies star Muslim women as the central characters is such an unusual thing for us in Western cinema to have these films come over here and for us to experience them and learn about that perspective and that life and something us as, you know, British white guys, we will never truly understand what women, let alone women in other parts of the world, have to put up with and have to deal with and all that kind of stuff. The fact that she was so involved in the project is such a testament to why this film is so good and i've also read the graphic novel and why the graphic novel is so good as well and how you know this story rings true for anyone anywhere no matter your background your culture all that kind of stuff as well it also quite pertinent now considering if you feel a little lost because what your country is doing no matter where you are the movie this shouldn't be much of a spoiler hopefully ends with her getting in a taxi and and the taxi is saying oh you come from the airport but where have you come from and where you're from and she says i'm from iran because despite what the country is doing, despite what it's become, despite everything else, that's her country as much as it is the people throttling it at the minute. Mm. And the same for people, as I say, right now. Like I remember when I was in uh, the States a couple of years ago, and it's like, this isn't Trump's America, it's America, and Trump happens to be in charge. You can be proud to be something as long as you're not being an asshole about it, but also remember that that's, you know, they define it because they're loud, but you define it because it's who you are and, you know, that kind of stuff. And it's it's just a f- fucking great film. Transitioning from uh, my choice there, let's uh, let's go over to Tim for something completely different. Uh, so my first pick, very different, is a film I think we've probably talked about in the past for, for various different reasons. Mm. Partially because it's a director that I think all of us regard very highly. Uh, David Fincher's Zodiac. Yeah. Featured many a time on sequelizers. We've often joked yes. that he is our go-to director, <laughs> is Mr. Fincher. Mm. Yeah, him him and Del Toro probably uh, yeah. Yeah. Are, are up there in, in terms of it. And we do like um, Villeneuve. <laughs> we, do, we do like Villeneuve. Um, yeah, so the Zodiac obviously is the story of the Zodiac Killer, who was an infamous serial killer who plagued uh, the San Francisco Bay area in the, I want to say the 70s and 80s? No, 60s and 70s. Mm. Late 60s through to the late 70s. And was never caught, importantly. And it's one of those things where it is, it's almost the truth is stranger than fiction. Because if you if you started writing a story sort of now about, oh, there's this uh, serial killer who no one ever sees his face and he sends codes to the, uh, to the, the press that identify himself and uh and he calls himself Zodiac and he get, and, and they, they people have to solve these codes to find out who he is um and then he gets away with it he never gets caught people would be like it's mm, a bit out there isn't it you know but this was a this was a real person he was it was such a like striking story that obviously it also got turned into the first of the dirty harry films yes yeah when you know they um they essentially kind of did a based on a true story but we'll we'll um 
He's Scorpio, not Zodiac. It's different. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll, we'll <laughs> like file sure. off all the serial num- numbers and uh, we'll have yeah. him get caught at the end because we want. Uh, and if anyone asks, to... we'll, we'll just say it's Jack the Ripper and it's not the same thing because yes. you know again it's taunting the police with notes and all that kind of shit. Yeah. yeah. Um, but rather than you know do sort of revisionist history and have have the bad guys uh, have the good guys catch him at the end, Fincher takes a very um, realistic approach and it's striking in the the level of reality that he applies to it and the kind of intricate recreation of all these period details and he's someone who his camera work is always does very little like handheld does very little like unmotivated camera movement and the camera just kind of feels like this presence that is just kind of gliding over the events in all of his films here it works so well because it's it's presenting these things that really happened and so it it does feel like you're this this kind of omnipresent orb <laughs> that's yeah, just traveling yeah, around these real real world scenes just like observing them as they happen and given the fact that you know zodiac is out there and nobody knows who he is and you know he he sort of people get so close to catching him and then he slips away it adds that same kind of almost like a voyeuristic energy to the whole film yeah. of you know nobody knows exactly who it is that they're looking for fantastic performances in it it's kind of anchored by uh jake gyllenhaal um who plays robert graysmith uh who was a political cartoonist at one of the san francisco newspapers at the time who essentially became kind of obsessed with the case um he he helped break one of the first codes and just basically kind of becomes obsessed as as a lot of uh fincher characters do obsession is is something he comes back to a lot um and it and it kind of screws up his life his his search for answers um and then it's also got uh mark ruffalo as uh, the detective and robert downey jr as another as a reporter uh for the san francisco chronicle and a, and a absolutely loaded cast um brian cox is is terrific john carroll lynch who plays one of the people they suspect of being the Zodiac is absolutely terrifying in his scenes. It's it's sort of a completely loaded cast. And it just, it, it literally just kind of takes you through the events of the Zodiac case. And it doesn't tend to really sensationalize it that much. There's a few moments where you can tell Fincher is playing a little bit and being like, I'm going to crank up the tension here. But for the most part, it does feel like you are just watching these events play out as they actually happened, which obviously, as we've discussed, is completely lunacy because you're always making decisions when you make a film about what to show, what not to show. There's going to be things here that nobody knows exactly how they played out and there's going to be things that they got wrong or they decided to adapt differently. But it, to me, it kind of it feels like a very hands off version of the truth. And I think that's what fincher was going for and i think he absolutely obtains that uh achieves mm-hmm. that in mm-hmm. in what he made and and it's just a absolutely fantastic film so tense in the parts where they where he decides to kind of really up the tension the moment where it's uh gray smith interviewing i can't remember the name of the guy but but the the sort of a, a person who he thinks may be connected and then gets uh gets told oh you know oh, i have a basement and this was something that they previously figured uh that the, the zodiac killer was someone with a basement and um and it suddenly just becomes the most tense yeah. moment in the world um it's a scene you can break down for so long going 
oh my god, everything about how this is framed and shot and the and I won't say who it is for, for spoiler purposes, but the actor they get in that role mm. when you find out what he's most famous for, you how that's so against cast, that's so good and it's terrifying. And as you say, it's like it's a proper screaming, don't go in there. That yeah. kind of moment, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's the 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 moments where Fincher decides to turn it into that almost kind of almost like slasher horror type sequences, and yet there's other bits. There's actual like murders in the film that take place with this very like I'm just going to put the hat camera here, and you're just going to see it play out, <laughs> um, yeah. which makes it all the more kind of terrifying because it feels so mundane. I first saw this film when I was in San Francisco. Um, oh, shit. <laughs> and, Why would you uh, do that, Tim? What a terrible uh, idea. Oh, it was great. I felt absolutely terrified walking around afterwards. <laughs> um, it's like, he was never caught. Oh, my God. He's coming to get me. Um, but no, I, I, I think it's it's just a fantastic film. There's an interesting parallel, like, like two, I think, that are really sort of s- draw a similar line. One is Zodiac and one is... Uh, Memories of Murder by um, Bong Joon-ho, mm. um, primarily because both deal with this very um, huge serial killer moment in their respective countries. One obviously about the Zodiac killer, the other about Korea's first serial murders, like confirmed serial murders. The difference that's interesting is the Zodiac film takes, as Tim said, these conclusions and runs them through a possibility like this is the most likely outcome and gives you a sort of almost satisfying, unsatisfying conclusion. The closure's there, but you kind of mm-hmm. don't want it in a way. You're like, no, 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 I'm that makes it more frustrating because now I know the answer. Memories of Murder does the same thing, except in 2019, they apprehended the actual killer. And there is sort of like the story that Bong Joon-ho sort of crafted with um, Shim Sung-bo. The things they came up with and the close similarities of who they might have been and him knowing in this awful moment in his mind, Bong Joon-ho saying, this guy watched this film probably. In yeah. just that moment thinking like, and that's that was Zodiac for example. I mean, I don't know if he's this the killer's probably even alive or not, but there's a possibility he watched Zodiac went, eh, yeah. Definitely watched <laughs> fucking Dirty Harry. So yeah. crazy, crazy stuff. Mm. And I think I think it's it's interesting that it's the first thing that Fincher ever did that was based on a true story. Mm. And he's come back to that. He's obviously done the social network, he's done Mank. The thing that sprung to mind for me is Mindhunter. Like that's mm. a very clear kind of like oh yes very similar very searching for serial killers and very clearly like lays the groundwork for that whole thing and yeah. the moments of tension in that show really really reminded me of Zodiac and and kind of build uh, incredible cast again and building that tension of like my sat in, am I sat in the room as the same guy it could be it could totally be him <laughs> oh fuck it probably is him and then there's that final switch of like it's not. Or is it? Oh, <laughs> fuck. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. Those, those moments of tension, I think Fincher is an absolute master of that. And mm. I mean, you, you absolutely nailed about how great the cast is as well, because this is this is the beginning of RDJ's r- revival, his resurrection of his career, because this is before Iron Man. <laughs> like, this is the... Mm. Th- between this and Iron, between Zodiac and Iron Man in 2007 mm. and 2008, Robert Downey Jr. suddenly becomes the, the biggest star in the world over the next decade following that. And... Whenever I think of Zodiac, his performance always sticks out to me for some reason. I remember watching that and not really knowing who he was and having no idea he's about to be the biggest star in the world for the next 10 years (laughs) and thinking like, God, this guy's really good. Where has he been this whole time? That's crazy. (laughs) Thought nothing of it. I was 18 at the time. I was like, cool. He's really good. I like Jake Gyllenhaal and Mark Ruffalo. Cool. 
didn't think anything of it. But yeah, I think you've absolutely nailed it, Tim. That the the performances, the what you mentioned, Matt, about the the camera work and the cinematography is, as is always the case with Finch films, just immaculate and so purposeful. And something I think a lot of filmmakers and a lot of viewers, I'm completely guilty of this myself, is not picking up on that those subtleties of like purposeful camera movements, purposeful choices for shots. There's a thing where it's like um, really, really close over the shoulder to the point where you're like, how did they get the camera that close to mm-hmm. this to the side of this guy's face? Like how I'm uncomfortably close to this person, but they're on a screen and I'm sat in my underwear in my living room. Like, how, how is this possible? Like, And like, there must be a lens that is like this close to this guy's face. You're like, that, I just, that's an invasion of personal space. And it's, but it's not, but mm. it is. Oh, I feel so uncomfortable. That's so good. Yeah. It's little things like that that I think really make Zodiac like even more the sum of its parts and why it's so fucking good. Yeah. It is. There's a constant feeling of discomfort in that film, which, yeah, is, is so well crafted. And yet it's one of those Fincher films that most people haven't seen. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. People think of Seven and um, some of the other more obvious stuff, don't they? And then, yeah. Mm. Anyway, Jack, we'll come around to your first pick. You gave me a little segue a few minutes ago, Tim. You mentioned cracking codes. Oh. I'm going to I'm gonna, ah. I'm gonna take that ball and I'm going to fucking run with it. The I Da Vinci want... Code. No, I'm going to talk about <laughs> the Da Vinci Code, as we know, based on a true story <laughs> about how aliens reinvented the Vatican and... <laughs> I think that's what it's about, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, No, I'm going to be talking about the 2014 film, The Imitation Game, which is, if those of you who don't know, is essentially a biographical story of Alan Turing, who is, or was, sorry, rather, a literal genius and helped crack huge parts of the Enigma Code, which was this basically way of the, the... Axis powers communicating with each other in the late 30s and into the early 40s as part of World War II. And it was the Allies trying to decode their messages and try and understand what their next political movements are, what their next military movements are going to be, all this kind of stuff. And uh, quite famously, Alan Turing was an integral part of that and has gone on to have much influence. You may have heard of the Turing test, which is based on another theory of his about robotics and stuff. The guy was a literal genius. And unfortunately, he was not heralded as a genius at the time and was completely disgraced because he was gay and it was the 40s and 50s. And, you know, by the time you get into the 50s, he essentially is like wiped from history and tortured and imprisoned and lived a horrible, horrible, like last few years of his life due to that horrible... For comparison... He is currently on the £50 note. The highest bit of currency we have in this country. It's like, put him on there. He should be on there a lot, of time, you know, long before now. And it's like, Alan Turing, everybody, isn't it great? Oh, he's very interesting. It's like, yeah, this is the same country that absolutely fucked him into the ground. And they, yeah, they killed that, him. They literally killed him. I know, like, I know. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. Good old blighty. Oh, yeah, exactly. The fact that, and I, what I really appreciate about the imitation game, specifically, obviously, one, Turing is, is, such a fascinating figure to me and has been for years and years and years um but the fact that you know the imitation game and as as up and down as i find benedict cumberbatch's acting i do think he's actually pretty good in this movie and he does really kind of nail the tortured genius kind of side of touring and the fact that everything he goes through towards the end of his life you know into the 
the mid fifties, it was just just horrible. And like you said, Matt, he's lauded as this hero and this genius and this integral part of British ingenuity and all this kind of stuff. And like we touched on earlier, because of the, all the politics behind it and all the bullshit, you run into oh, he didn't get the credit he deserves. If anything, he should be more lauded and more you know greatly appreciated than he is this day. Thankfully, as we mentioned, we're heading in the right direction where people in the LGBTQ community are being more accepted and all this kind of stuff. And I'd like to think if this happened in the 21st century, it wouldn't have happened in the same way. But fuck me, we, we, we talked about Donald Trump earlier who was elected five years ago Shit like this is still happening. Persecution of people like this is still happening around the world. Not even touching on shit that's happening in, you know, other parts of the world, in China and the Middle East and all this kind of stuff, and, and Russia. It's it's worth noting, it wasn't until 2009 that Alan Turing got an official apology, by which, I, obviously, he was dead, but like a... Uh, he, he died in 1954, by the way. He was dead for yeah. 50 fucking years before mm. they mm. even did a state apology. And for a country yeah. that loves to talk about World War II and how we won the war, which, you know, it's like this individual almost ensured a lot of actual victories mm-hmm. in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. S- almost single-handed. Hundreds of thousands of lives. Yeah. yeah. Also, I, would, I would say, though, that it's interesting that the film itself, uh, was it Morton Tildum mm. who directed it? Yeah. Norwegian. And I always feel like, it's probably not because obviously it's been based on a, a script and so on and so forth, but... It's always one of those interesting things of if it was directed by a British person, would it have been as honest? And in this day and age, in 2014, 2015, when it came out, yeah, yeah, it probably would have been. But again, if it was made in the mid 2000s, would it have been? Mm, probably not. We would have said he was like a lovely guy. He had some friends. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a fascinating question because it's like it probably wouldn't have like no one would have made it in, say, like the 90s or the 2000s. But equally, if it had been made, it probably would have glossed over that. And they would have given it like they give him Kira Knightley as this kind of like who is his quote unquote wife, you know, in this. Um, but obviously, it clearly acknowledges that he was a gay man. And, mm. and you know, that was a, a, a big part of his life. But you can imagine that the version that would have been made 10 years previous would have just had, oh, yes, here's his wife. And let's not talk about anything else about that. Oh, old old Alan does a, he does a bit of the older <laughs> you know what I mean, and that would be in yeah that that music movie exists. Uh, it stars uh, Dougray Scott and Kate Winslet, and it's called Enigma. Yes, and it's very loosely based on yeah. things, and obviously they're not named. I think it's like we're doing it, and there's no homosexuality in it at all. We just nicked a briefcase and won the war, which which is interesting because. The Imitation Game was criticised for downplaying Turing's homosexuality, mm-hmm. and then I know there was a there was a part of the LGBT community that came out and were like, "Well, actually, no, we you know we know about the the end of Alan's life and all this kind of stuff, and he wasn't like overtly like typical Hollywood over the top homosexual kind of stuff." First of all, you couldn't be like that back then, and and it be, was in a, be in a position of power. Yeah. He was mm. purposefully hiding his true self because it wasn't accepted back then. And that I think people were expecting to be like, oh, it's a story about one of the you know, one of the famous gay guys who was persecuted for his sexuality and all this kind of stuff. They're really going to play into that. It was like, uh, he won fucking World War II. Let's talk about that. Sure, his sexuality did define him against his wishes, but 
sexuality isn't the only thing that defined Alan Turing and the fact that he's had this incredible legacy of inventions and genius breakthroughs and stuff like that says so much about him as as a person as a character and I think a lot of people have then kind of counteracted the criticism and said actually no this does stay true to his legacy homosexuality was obviously a part of who he is and you know what he stood for and all this kind of stuff that's a part of his person but it's not everything that's not the only thing that defined him, he's also the guy that cracked the Enigma code. That's pretty fucking important. Mm-hmm. And coming back to what you said, Matt, I think I, I would like to think the fact that Morton Tildum directed this and is written by Graham Moore, who is American, who granted did is a bit of a kind of Anglophile weirdo with his obsession with Sherlock and a few <laughs> other things. But the fact that you have non-British people are basically they're able to not wank over world war ii <laughs> because we are so guilty of this as a nation of being like oh it's the wars and we won the war because of britishness and we're the best and fucking boris johnson i know it's, it's quite a political episode everybody i apologize <laughs> fucking boris johnson True stories exactly yeah yeah boris johnson is always going on about fighting the war against covid just like we did back in the good old days and all this fucking bullshit and all this war narrative nonsense i wonder if having and obviously we'll never know because it wasn't directed by a a british director but having tilden come on as a norwegian gave it a sense of like neutrality in a way and he was able to see through a lot of the potential propaganda bullshit and actually tell a relatively accurate story and, and an interesting story about turing and his life and everything like that that that's always been my interpretation of it ever since I kind of understood, you know, Morton Tilden and, and what he, you know, where he comes from and all that kind of stuff as a filmmaker. Granted, he made passages. It's fucking terrible. Fuck me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that that gives the imitation game an interesting twist and an interesting side and look at the the characters in it rather than having it being a an English wank fest, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think I think the most interesting scene in the imitation game is the moment where they they crack the code and it slowly dawns on them that essentially they have to let like a submarine I, I can't remember exactly what it is. It's, it's, a, it's a submarine. A, it's a like a um oh, um it's it's a ship basically. And yeah. a submarine's going to attack them and they're like yes. we have to let that also the merchant navy or something they're like yeah. No, yeah, sorry, Sam. Yeah. yeah, we yeah, essentially saying like we have to let the Germans sink this ship because if we warn them then they know we'll have broken we've broken the code and they'll change it, they'll stop using yes. it. Yeah. And having Turing be the be the first person to recognize that and to be the one arguing and to show this slightly kind of cold side of him of that that he was a little like kind of detached and emotionless and was willing to say, like, no, we have to let this thing this these hundreds of people die because the bigger picture is that with this code still in operation then we'll save hundreds you know down the line hundreds and thousands sure and i think it's not afraid to make him a little bit terse and a little bit cold and a little bit unlikable which for a a lot of like we say there's a lot of biopics out there that just want to turn their protagonists into saints and i'm sure would have had him you know argue oh no, we've got to save those boys and have, have him be overruled by British, you know, secret intelligence brass kind of thing. Um, and those to goddamn have him suits be, will hold me back. Yeah, and to have him be the one who's who's basically saying like, no, we've got to, we've got to let it happen. Um, and to have the other characters hate him for that is 
I think, a, a worthwhile choice. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't agree more, Tim. That's my favourite scene as well. I think showing that side of your, essentially your protagonist, is such a bold choice because I find a lot of people watch films, not necessarily like this, not necessarily based on true story, but a lot of films and, and stories where you're not supposed to like the main character. Like, I'm like, I didn't like it. I didn't like the main character. And I'm there like, I fucking loved it. You're not supposed to. Like, <laughs> I, again, I'm not going to touch on it for too long, but a very common complaint about The Last of Us and those video games is like, oh, I really like Joel. Now I don't like Joel. Oh, I really liked Ellie. Now I don't like Ellie. It's like, yeah, that's the point. Revenge and, and all these terrible things consume you and turn you into a bad person. They're not a fucking superhero. This is supposed to be a grounded and realistic thing. And the fact that we're talking about based on a true story, and like we said, people are fallible. People have flaws. People have different facets to them. People have to make tough decisions, and it's not all fucking sunshine and rainbows and Hollywood magic and stuff. You get people who have to make those decisions. And yeah, I totally agree. It's the right choice to have him do it rather than, you know, twist it a bit and be like, no, we need to save those people. And then, oh, those damn lieutenants and generals have to come in and tell him off and tell him it's for the greater good of Britain and all this kind of stuff. Like, it's a bold choice. And I I appreciate that about that film, for sure. Mm. Matthew, background to you. What's your second pick? Direct link. Time to talk about Nazis. The war. So I'm going to talk about in my opinion, one of my favorite movies. Wow. Now, to be fair, I have a long list of favorite movies. There are cool. Of course you do. Movies. Yeah. If someone says, what's your favorite movie? I'll turn to like one or two things. And then it's like, now can you give me the next here? It's like, ah, I'll give you the next 100. It's like, I don't need that. It's like, well, tough. The door's locked. Um, <laughs> I adore the shit out of this movie. I was 20 when it came out and it was magnificent. And in so many versions of so many stories where one of the mistakes is you humanize someone and it's like, well, this is just an apologetic piece that's just fucking hideous. This movie is fascinating because in a way it humanizes these individuals by not necessarily making you relate with them, but making you see that they were people and that everyone underneath them was all in the best way. The film in question is the 2004 film Der Untergang, or Downfall, um, by Oliver Hirschbiegel. I fucking love this movie so basically it opens up with some actual video recording of Trudel Junger who is just this young lady who was living in Nazi Germany in 1942 she was uh, you know she could type therefore she was drafted to be part of a group and she was drafted as Hitler's personal secretary then a couple of years later the Red Army's pushing through Germany and Berlin is surrounded the war is basically over Germany is fucked and it's amazing because it's just this very small piece about a very like a very small period of time of every motherfucker turning on everybody and you all know this movie even if you think you don't <laughs> because you've seen Bruno Gun- Bruno Guns screaming nine this is my and just she screaming um, because you've seen like oh my Xbox Live account's been cancelled no my fucking yeah yeah the, the 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 thing is though we have we have listeners young enough that like because that meme has not been in circulation that's true oh, no. for about oh, five no, years it's so old that's true oh we have well, then, memes that people don't know about because good. they're too young to understand memes then oh, in that case you can just watch so, it we're so, old. <laughs> so basically it is the recounting of Hitler in the Führerbunker 
and him being surrounded by basically all the fucking worst people we've ever had as, as humans. Like Goebbels is there and he's literally like, oh, I, I believe the, the Fuhrer entirely. I, I'll do anything for him. And you know what? He's he, We're going to do the final thing. So what are we going to do? Poison our fucking children. It's like, what? Yeah, not going to be giving into the thing. And, you know, Hitler's going to kill himself and it's brave and we will respect him. But because it's Claudia Junger's perspective, and she, even in her opening interview in the movie, like a real interview with her saying, like, we were, it, it was, it's horrible to say it, but we were excited. We were like, this is the Fuhrer. This is amazing. I, I'm going to meet him. I'm going to be part of this huge movement because you didn't appreciate what was going on. And again, people say these days, oh, I would never have signed up with the Nazis. You don't fucking know that. And the most recent voting history and how things are going in a lot of countries right now, you know some people who have similar ideologies on the same path. It doesn't take much to go down these awful, awful roads. But it also humanizes and, and highlights that a lot of the sort of high-ranking Nazi officials, just soldiers, were like going like, this whole thing is falling down now. Everything's falling apart. This is a fucking disaster. And they were all killing each other as it were. And like, well, I was, I was about is- to say, they famously all turned on each other and precisely Goebbels yeah. and Himmler and all that was stuff like, no, fuck you. This is your fault. And then yeah. blaming Hitler and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was like, we're in it, you know, the ideology has fallen away. We're now in it for ourselves. And Speer is, is on the run and, you know, Flegel's doing his thing and, and, and all these different you know, famous, awful human beings from history are like, you know, oh, when I meet uh, the allied forces, do I give them the Hitler salute or I shake their hands? <laughs> it's like, you fucking asshole. I, I mean, I, I, there's no justice for what you've done, you fucking monster. But you see also these fact that, that Berlin was a city. It was a place. It was full of real people. And that's what I say about humanizing. You see that when, when Hitler was blowing his fucking brains out and all these people were like, oh, we'll do the honourable thing, we'll stay with it, and him screaming, we're just going to wait for this person to come through on this, the left flank. It's like, they're not coming. What do you mean they're not coming? I told you they have to... I ordered you. It's like, they're gone. There, There is no backup. And the, the Luftwaffe it's like, I need everyone to get the fuck out. And, you know, Goering has done his own thing. It's like, this is this is literally chaos. And all these high-ranking officials are getting drunk and then being shot and stuff. And the people defending Berlin are children. Literal Nazi youth children, and because all the adults have abandoned them or been killed as the Russians are coming through. And Twaddle herself, you have this thing of like, well, what do I do? Do I have to kill myself as well? Do I get out? What do I do? It's like the Red Army is coming through. And again, historically, what Russia did in Berlin as a retaliation is fucking horrifying. To the, to the, again, separating Germany and Nazis for a second here, because people too, conflate those two far too often. And I, I, there's an old line which I really love, which is that the first country that the Nazis invaded was their own. And obviously there are innocent individuals and that's how it works. But the point is that when the Red Army came through, the amount of rape that was going on was fucking obscene. And all the sort of things. So it's like, Charles Junger, if it found came out that she was the press secretary to Hitler, who knows what would happen to her. So, you know, it's her fate comes to the And you're drawn into this very human story in this awful, awful setting. So as we say, like, but you know, Oh, Blighty's won the war, and old Churchill's giving it what for, and we're storming the beach, and you see him saving Private Ryan, and it's like, yeah, war is a fucker. War is awful, but to see it from the perspective, in a weird way, of someone who is wrapped up in the whole thing. Like Persepolis, for example, it's someone who's like, innocent, is like, this world is changing around me, and I'm furious, but I'm still around him, this is what I am. To someone who's like, I'm not the architect of this, but I'm definitely involved in this, and if I could go back and talk to that girl, 
I just shake her and say, stop, you, you've got to stop this. You, the, the classic, you know, you know, you two younger version of yourself. And it's a, it's a harrowing film to watch. It's a touching film to watch and a brilliantly executed movie, in my opinion. The performances are all around this stunning thing. I think it's, it's one of the sort of mandatory views. Obviously, it's, it's also the history becomes the film. It's like, oh, I remember that moment. It's like, well, it didn't actually go down like that. Hitler probably wasn't this, this nice, dottery old man rubbing his dogs. And, like, you know, it's like he, was, he was the literal, you know, worst element of humanity, as it were. So Bruno he's, Granz is he's great the guy sport. you compare other guys to to win arguments on the internet. <laughs> yes, exactly. And Bruno Granz is just this nice Swiss bloke. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it's it's a it's a genuinely fantastic movie. And, and as I've said, with all the movies we're gonna we're gonna talk about tonight, you have to watch them all. And not like, a, oh, you should check this out. Fuck that. You should be watching these movies. Fair. Yeah. Down, downfall is fucking fantastic. Um, funny enough, I watched it a few years ago. As part mm. of my uh, when I wrote my D-Day graphic novel, because ah. I I mm. feature Albert Speer and Himmler and kind of the I purposely wanted to talk about the internal machinations of what was happening and why D-Day happened, how it did, and what was going on in the Alps essentially at the time of why everyone was freaking out and on on the on the Nazi side of things why it all went so wrong. So I was like. Is there any? I've watched. I'd watched a bunch of documentaries. I'd got a bunch of books from the library and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, I wonder. I remember there's that nine 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 meme. Like, <laughs> I wonder. I was like, oh, it it is a film. It's not just like a you know a clip of something or something like that. Oh, check this out. And you were totally right, Matt. It is fantastic. And I think talking about humanizing. The Nazis is such a tricky topic because it feels like you're justifying it and you're saying like, oh, well, you know, anyone could be a Nazi. It's like, well, I'd like to think I couldn't. But then, as you said, now with the political movements happening in many different parts of the world, people get caught up in misinformation and propaganda and bullshit and then start believing a political leader and following them. And you're like, you know, they're a fascist, right? I'm like. What do you mean they're a fascist? No, 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 they just believe in like less taxes and stuff. You know? They also hate all the immigrants and all the foreigners and all the people of colour and all the people of different sexualities. Like, well, yeah, but I'll get better taxes, right? I think. Well, well, yes, I guess if you're rich, but you're not. So no. Hitler said everyone else around Ugh. you is evil and these people are to blame for the way things are and the press is lying to you and I'll give you all jobs. Sounds very fucking familiar. Mm, doesn't it just? I know it sounds like it's like you, you can't make the comparison. It's like, oh, the Hitler playbook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, but we just hope it gets in check enough. The problem is that people say, like, I don't like that label. No, no, no I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a Nazi. You're not Nazi. Those Nazis are Germans in the 40s. I don't know. You've got a lot of Nazi ideologies there. You seem to think a lot about, like, you know, a world Jewish order and how mm. they're all to blame for the way you are right now. And it's like, yeah, yeah, but that's fine, right? Like, no, that's that's got a very specific label to it. That's, that's fairly similar. Anyway, anyway, I'm going to segue back to Tim. Tim, have you got anything about a despotic leader you can bring up? Why, yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Look at this. Fucking slick podcasting, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> From one despotic leader in crisis to another. Yeah. Uh, but with a very different tone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I am going to talk about the 2017 film The Death of Stalin. Mm. Magnificent film which is directed by Armando Iannucci, who people might know better for The Thick of It, uh, In the Loop, uh, and Veep. Mm -hmm. And obviously got a huge, very long history in British comedy, writing, directing, producing, all those kind of things. 
then he decided to make a film about when Stalin died. <laughs> and spoiler alert, it's not as harrowing as Downfall. Yes. Uh, although it is, it like the marketing for it was very much like, oh, it's a comedy. It's a, obviously a dark comedy, but it's a comedy. It is not afraid to show some of the real atrocities oh, yeah. that were going yeah. on in Stalinist Russia. It's got the air of the favourite. It's like, oh, this could be funny. I like Olivia Colman. It's like, yeah. nah, it's a crazy Greek dude who makes movies. I don't think you're going to like this. Yeah. Um, so for people who aren't familiar with it, it's it's essentially about, as it says on the tin, the death of Stalin and then the political manoeuvring amongst the uh the council of ministers who was the kind of the the the, the ruling group of uh, the soviet union at that time basically a lot of political maneuvering and power brokering to work out who's nominally in charge who's actually in charge who is manipulating the person who's actually in charge who is going to be killed off in the chaos what grudges are going to be kind of resolved uh, in this moment of of absolute turmoil and it's it takes the brilliant idea of not making anyone try and do a russian accent uh because the <laughs> cast is not at all russian um no, no. apart from like olga Kurlenko, is like uh, she, she she's ukrainian, ukrainian. Yeah. yeah but yeah you have you have steve buscemi as nikita khrushchev uh you have uh, the brilliant Jason Isaacs as Zukov, who's just comes in with this like Yorkshire accent um, and is just magnificent. Yeah. Uh, Michael Palin, uh, Simon Russell Beale as oh, uh, Beria. Terrifying in this movie. Yeah. Brilliant and terrifying. Jeffrey Tambor as <laughs> Malenkov. It's it's fantastic. And uh, the, the the kind of the fact that they they just say, like, just do your normal accent. We don't care is great because it adds to this kind of chaotic energy of the thing of just everyone talking over each other and trying to kind of, as, as Beria says, mobilize against each other, um, it, despite, you know, ostensibly all being on the same side. Mm -hmm. And it does, it, it's this, I mean, it's this pitch black comedy where, you know, you have Stalin essentially kind of has a, has a, a, a brain hemorrhage, and his guards are so terrified that they just stand outside the room the entire night. Yeah. Um, you have, you know, you have uh, the, the kind of the opening scene of the film is Stalin listening to this piece of music on the radio um, and then rings up the studio and basically says, I like this. I'd like the recording sent to me. And they realize, oh, we're not recording. And they have to, like, convince the audience and the composers and, uh, uh, and the um conductor and the the orchestra like you've got to stay here we've got to do it again because the like stalin wants a recording so we've got to do the whole thing again and record it this time mm -hmm. um it's it's absolutely fantastic and, and like i say it's not afraid to get very dark towards the end where you know you have the um the people who had flooded in from across the soviet union to mourn stalin and they a bunch of them are slaughtered um by the uh the nkvd um, I think about 1,500 mourners were killed because there were there was essentially confusion about whether or not mourners would be allowed in to to see Stalin lying in state, and that that was a political thing between like Beria and Khrushchev and and arguably Zukov for saying like why have you why have you sent the fucking military away? It's a yeah. military fucking funeral for our fucking leader. That it's, that's the whole thing is like these much like the the downfall comparison, a very small handful of individuals fucking around trying to squabble for power 
mm. and people dying is part of it. Yeah. It's the thing that Iannucci and, and, and the kind of the team that works with him are so good at capturing and the, and the the sort of the terrifying truth that whenever you hear MPs talk about the thick of it and in the loop um, and, and those shows, um, they go, oh, yeah, it's it's basically like that in real life. And it's it's this it's this petty squabbling and it's this, you know, people toying with each other and a, a, a disregard for the amount of power that they wield and just like well i want to do this thing so i'm gonna fuck over this guy because he doesn't like he he made me kind of fit like he insulted my wig or whatever you know and so i'm gonna i'm gonna oust him from his position it's like you know if you do that then like a thousand people will die because you to do that you're gonna have to have you know your this military force take over from this police force and to do that they're gonna have to slaughter people. it's like yeah but he said something mean about my wig like I don't care. It's worth now. It. There's a giant power vacuum and all this kind of stuff, and like yeah, yeah. yeah. And it is that. It's that thing. Like you say, it's this small group of people wielding this immense amount of power with just a callous disregard. Not even a disregard. Just a complete. It's not even on their radar to think about the people that are getting trodden over. Well, this is this is Stalin who said allegedly that uh, the death of one is a tragedy. The death of a million is a statistic. Like yes, you're led to believe that this is the whole point of it. Yeah, and it's it's a fantastic film because it does it shows the ridiculousness of the people in power and also the tragedy that this is what we let them get away with. Yeah, yeah, I think it's it to 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 manage the tone that they do is such a it's such a high wire act of being able to be like, yeah, we're gonna do this and we're gonna make it funny and there's gonna be moments where you are like pissing yourself laughing yeah. and then you're also seeing this awful atrocities take place and i don't think it's it's a i don't think it's a perfect film but i think it manages to tread that line incredibly well and the performances are so good um everyone is just so <laughs> unlikable in in just uh, but manages to also have you can see how they got into their positions of power and uh Oh, Rupert Friend as as Vasily, <laughs> Stalin's son, who's just a, a like a drunk idiot. Oh, Russian he's cubs. Just, yes, Ukrainian be cubs. better, you clattering fannies. <laughs> um, You're not a person. You're a testicle <laughs> with eyes. Oh. The thing is, when it came out, the uh, uh, one of the leaders of a certain Russian party um, was saying, "Oh, this is a terribly, you know, it's a, it's an awful act." Of, of, of mean-spirited disinformation by the British intellectual class. And it's like, motherfucker, this isn't about Russia, really. This is about us and America. It's about when you put dickheads like that in charge and how they eventually eat each other alive and we all suffer because of it. In 2018, they were predicting the whole, what will, you know, the, the fucking Trump Giuliani madness of what's going on and the eventual vote leave people with like Gove and Cummings and Johnson all turning on each other. Like, oh, we're having hearings now where these things are happening in, in real life. And it's like, that's what they were referring to. They were predicting and, and talking about that kind of stuff. Not you. We know it's not historically exactly accurate because we've got this, you know, ridiculous characters, but we also know that is part of your history. So maybe you should talk about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and also I would encourage anyone, look up a picture of Jason Isaacs in this film as Zukov. Oh yeah. And the ridiculous amount of medals on his chest and know that they actually had to play down the amount of medals that Zukov <laughs> had on his chest because yeah. they were like, that looks too ridiculous. Yeah. So we're round again to Jack. I'm gonna spin into a bit into a bit more comedy, if anything, and talk about a 2019 movie 
Dolomite Is My Name, starring Eddie Murphy in the best performance he's done of the last 15 years. Yeah, probably. Something like that. Because Eddie Murphy has been in a bunch of shit for a very long (laughs) time and made lots of terrible fucking movies. But thankfully, this film is fantastic and basically tells the story of filmmaker, rapper, singer, stand-up comedian known as Rudy Ray Moore, who is this kind of music-producing, exploitation filmmaking madman in the in the 1970s and uh yeah eventually goes on to star in the character he's known for dolomite in the 1975 film and its many sequels and kind of what he became known for and yeah essentially it tells a sort of semi-fictionalized sort of true story of his journey through the music industry and his many failings and eventually through to his sort of semi-success in in Hollywood through making black exploitation movies and kind of going against the grain and everybody telling him he's going to fail and he kind of does but he then goes on to you know live a life and and get much like Alan Turing weirdly enough what a weird comparison to make <laughs> to get recognized like posthumously after he's died of like no, he was a really big influence. He was a really big deal. People haven't really understood the influence he's had since his first creations like 30, 40, 50 years ago. And now understanding that so much of the stuff that Moore was doing with the Dolomite character and all of the kind of boundaries he was pushing in those movies, he's now considered like one of the big influences of, of a lot of the early rappers and the, the the birth of hip hop as we know it in the late 70s and early 80s. And him being so integral to that kind of music scene around that sort of time as well. It's a fascinating look at something I knew literally nothing about going into it. I never even heard of the guy going into it. And it is one of Eddie Murphy's best performances. You've got Keegan-Michael Key, you've got Chris Rock, you've got Chris Robinson, Titus Burgess, Wesley Snipes. Wesley fucking Snipes. He's fantastic <laughs> in this movie. Again, playing a real guy called Devil Martin, who is an actor and director. And between Murphy and Snipes, it's their best performances in like this side of the millennium, probably. Yeah, and- definitely. <laughs> and uh yeah it's a it's fantastic look into that and it's available on netflix it's a netflix original so you can go and check it out on netflix nice and easily mm-hmm. um i think i talked about it on a watch we what what we've watched recently for patrons you did or or or, or mm. i can't remember when it was many many moons ago it feels like mm. but when we were talking about like oh what films we're gonna pick i was like what films have i seen recently that were this, this kind of thing of based on a true story and Dolomite is my name came straight into my mind. It's like that film is so entertaining and so good. And it tells a somewhat tragic story, but in a really believable and also entertaining way, because this guy was so larger than life. And what I touched on earlier, the kind of stranger than fiction stories were like, yeah, but that didn't actually happen. He didn't actually spend all of his money making this Kung Fu black exploitation film in a barn in the middle of nowhere. I'm like, yeah, he did actually. Yeah, he he did a he made poured his heart and soul into this one fucking movie, and if it didn't work, he was done, and it kind of did. So he kept on doing them for the next forty years, and you're like, wow, yeah, okay, <laughs> that is really what <laughs> happened. And he basically played Dolomite and variations thereupon 
until he died just over a decade ago. And he lived this kind of crazy keeping black exploitation almost in a obviously things like Black Dynamite, which I fucking love that movie, <laughs> heavily inspired by things like Dolomite, the the kung fu themed black exploitation stuff. And obviously Black Dynamite is a is a wider commentary on black exploitation as a whole. But the whole, you know, I threw that shit before I came in the room and on and, and <laughs> who the hell is interrupting my kung fu and all that kind of stuff is <laughs> now that I know, is such a direct kind of reference to Dolomite and that similar kind of, he's a badass who's going to kick your ass and take your girl <laughs> kind of black exploitation movies. It's it's brilliant. And if you want to learn about kind of the history of black exploitation films, the history of hip hop and rap and all that side of things, and learn about that from, again, a really entertaining perspective, I highly recommend it. Have any of you guys seen it? I have now. I didn't have the time to think you yeah, watched yeah. it. It was this was one of the few times it, yeah. where I had seen it and you hadn't. And I That's was right. Like, <laughs> yes, <laughs> finally. Yeah, but because um, it was around award season, it was like, oh fuck, yes, there's was. so much stuff. Because because um, Eddie Murphy got Oscar nominations and Globe Golden Globe nominations. Or whatever I don't think it was. got the Oscar. Mm. That was that was part of the snub. I don't think he got the Oscar. I mean, we're like, what the fuck? Mm. Um, that was yeah. Yes. He, got, he got Golden Globe nominations, yes, but not yes. an Academy Award nomination. And everyone's yeah, like. But he, it's Eddie Murphy's best performance. What are you talking yeah. about? Like, yeah, he, he's. But it's really a great good. film. I, I I agree with everything Jack said, especially when it was announced. I thought oh, I was gonna be a typical Netflix star movie where it's like, right? it'll be fine yeah. and I'll be okay with it. And uh, you know, um, Eddie Murphy's been okay for a while. I guess he's on the rise. Maybe he'll be all right. But it's like, no, it's actually really, really fun and really good. Um, it, it could very yeah. easily be a big pile of shit. Oh yeah, there were there were so many elements like, yeah. working in it of like. Really? Eddie Murphy's the star. Um, okay, it's it's 2019. Are you sure? Are you sure? I'm like, yeah, yeah, trust me, trust me. Okay, it's fine. And yeah, it's way more than the sum of its parts. And I think definitely worth your time if you have a couple of hours and you're flicking through Netflix. Yeah. Highly recommend Dolomite is my name to learn more about Rudy Ray Moore and just watch a entertaining as hell fucking movie. Well, that brings us back round once again, your third and final pick. Mr. Stockton. Yes. So Persepolis and Downfall, two very different films about political upheaval and turmoil and madness and these people swept up in it for different reasons and railing against it and being part of it, but not and so on and so forth. This one is different because it's about one of the most famous revolutionaries of the 20th century and someone who was an architect of a lot of major, major changes in South and Central America. But that's not exactly what this film is about. The film in question is The Motorcycle Diaries, or Diarios de Motocicleta, um, and it came out in 2004. This is a weirdly important point because I was 20 when I saw it and I seen this and Downfall in the same fucking year. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, wow. my God, there's so much going on. And it talks about these two friends, a biochemist and a young medical student, and how they're going on this big, grand, you know, journey. And there's a 20, so 29 year old uh, Alberto Granado, and he's like, I've got a bike called La Poderosa, or the mighty one. He's going to ride it around. We're going to go all the way down here through these different countries in South America, see the whole continent, be fucking great. This mighty place that we're from. And coming with me is a 23 year old Che Guevara. And it's like, wait, 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 who? And people who know nothing about Che Guevara is like, oh, the guy from the post of it's in all those fucking the, dorm rooms. The, the guy on that that guy's t-shirt who has yeah. that white guy with dreads who has him on his t-shirt. Yeah, that guy. <laughs> yeah. But that Benito del Toro looking motherfucker who Benito del Toro eventually portrayed in film. Yep. Um that guy, you know the one the CIA killed? Like, yeah, he's just this 
23-year-old kid who's going on this bike ride, um, and he's a doctor who likes rugby, has asthma, and is specializing in leprosy. So he wants to go on his journey across the, the, the you know, to see Machu Picchu and stuff. He wants to go to a leper colony so he can like, it's like, okay, they're guns. No, that's not what this is about. <laughs> and it is basically the, it's more of a Kerouac kind of story in a weird way. It's a, it's a, it's a coming of age thing with this, this young innocent bloke is basically, and with this, you know, his very randy affable friend, they get on their bike and they go around and they like, you know, it's it's like what's what's the plan? Is it sounds like you're trying to get laid in every single country we pass through, every town. If I have my fucking way, that kind of thing. It's like, hey, listen, Fuso, do you want to be like this guy over here? This 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 fucking you know old man. Fuck that shit. Come with me. We we'll have a great journey. It's every twenty. And again, as a, at the time of being twenty, I was like, I want to go on these sort of journeys and adventures and things and live a life <laughs> and bloody blah, blah, blah. And because of the personality this person had, as in Che Guevara himself, Ernesto Guevara, he saw what the various countries were going through. So Argentina and, you know, going to Venezuela and all these different places and saying like, people are suffering and people are dying and there's inequality and this isn't fucking right. And his friend's like, yeah, but there's nothing we can really do about it. And he's like, no, there should be. And so, yeah, because you're going to be a doctor. That's, that's the whole point. You come from this, you know, decent, effectively middle-class family and you're going to go back and finish your thing. This is just like, this is just us going on a, on a bike ride, basically. But for him, it becomes such a journey, such an exploratory and, and, life-changing event that he effectively never really goes back and again we see about if it ends on the whole um black and black screen white text with photographs of the real thing and the little boat they made to sail down the river at one point and it's like holy shit this is all pretty much exactly what it was and you got uh gal garcia bernal playing the role and he does it fantastically and gal garcia bernal is fucking fantastic he's, he's brilliant he's amazing and rodrigo de la sana is also really fucking good it's it's just a really a really great road movie about oh my god a transformative time in someone's <laughs> life <laughs> fucking hell i'd like to, i'd like to point out only matt has used the t word that's true in this episode true. tim and i have kept it cool and managed yeah. to not. I, I was about transforming out the cliche. A transformative time in someone's life, um, but that, 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 that sort of yeah, Still that, that yeah, that's fair. It's a rite of passage kind of thing, and <laughs> and just that it goes literally from this idealistic, I say boy, you know, twenty three year old man effectively to a proper like man with a purpose and a drive. It's like it's almost like this world has been building, and again, much like the other two, this is based on two things. One. The Motorcycle Diaries themselves. This film's called The Motorcycle Diaries because Che Guevara wrote it. I have a copy upstairs. And he documented what he was seeing. And you can hear in his voice as he's writing how he changes. They get to like Peru, for example, and they get to this uh, San Pablo um, leper colony. And it's just the division of society on the north side of the, of the river and the south side. It's just, you know, you can see how... It, the the motivation to later become the political movements and the activists that and and in certain people's eyes terrorists and stuff you can see these things you can see what what is to become the film doesn't really fuck around with it too much it's not saying like and now you know why he did what he did it's like mm. no it's still like seeing how did this person become what they did like, well now you can see because like all you know how did Tradle Junger how did she go along with Hitler it's like because think where she was at the time. Think what she was seeing. Think what the, what her world was basically telling her. Same with Margie and um and Persepolis. How did she get so outspoken? It's like how could you not? And and I think that's the kind of the point. And the other account is the fact that um the real Alberto Granado, who's seen at the end of the movie, 
was very much part of the other thing. He said, he said, he said, he, I think he commented on it really, but he said that the film shows how they were as two young men. He said, boys really, and went looking for adventure and found the truth and tragedy of where they're from. And that to me sounds like every fucking someone who goes off to university, someone who goes off for the early twenties to live in like the first proper job, first proper house, whatever it is you think, Oh, there's going to be a great adventure. And you're like, fuck, there is a problem here. Things are not right. And either you turn to go with like, <laughs> ah, well, I'm part of the system. I can't do anything. Or you do something about it. And weirdly enough, when I was 23, I went to Cuba. Um, not because of this movie, essentially, but I had an epiphany, a moment when I was reading like, in Santa Clara, and there was like, that sort of stuff, and I thought, holy fuck, yeah, I'm, n- I'm now traveling to this place, and 23 was the age that Guevara was when he went on his bike ride and had this like, formative, life-changing, different view of the world and stuff. And I thought, yeah. It's, had, it's, you, had you already read the book and stuff like I was that? Already, yeah, I was already read a few things at that point. Right, I mean, right. I, I was... I, and not because I was like, oh, I'm really into my, you know, Marxism. It was because I was voraciously reading everything. I was working in a bookstore and I wanted to learn. And so I was reading about basically all kinds. I mean, from like like philosophy and, and like the Leviathan with the economics and stuff like that. And just all manner of things. And I was like, oh, Che Guevara wrote stuff. I'll read that. And that kind of thing. And I went to Cuba and saw her, how it is and the positives, negatives, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the film itself is great because it almost skirts the politics while underlining the politics. Whereas Persepolis and Downfall are very heavy-handed, and intentionally so, The Motorcycle Diaries is more about the the very human side of this. It almost doesn't want to talk about what is to come. Um, I was about to make that comparison. We, we've talked about humanizing people a couple of times on this show already, and especially the, the topics that you've brought up, Matt. As you said, some people see Che Guevara as a terrorist, as this communist scourge on the world and all this kind of, of course, stuff that of has brought ruin to countries in that part in central and south america and all this kind yeah. of stuff and other people see him as a savior who fought against injustices and all this kind of stuff mm. and understanding the person behind that the man as you correctly said and as uh um alberto granado said as well the boy behind that and <laughs> yeah. him him growing into a man, and like you said, that's such a common journey for people, literally and figuratively, to like, oh, I leave my hometown for the first time, I go to university, I go and do a thing for the first time, I meet people who aren't born, you know, within a 15-mile radius of where I grew up for the first time, I learn about their lives and their cultures and their languages and all this kind of stuff for the first time, and your perspective changes. As you become an adult, as you grow into your early 20s, progressing into adulthood and stuff like that you learn hopefully about you know other people's perspectives and how to relate to them and understand them and mm-hmm. empathize with them and all this kind of stuff and it's such a relatable story like i'm not comparing myself to che Guevara before we get carried away <laughs> i grew up in the middle of nowhere in norfolk and then you know you're both scientists yeah exactly exactly both devilish, devilishly handsome thank uh, you clearly. you're both on t-shirts <laughs> that's true my face is on a t-shirt now oh my god i am shagrafara reborn <laughs> who knew but no like growing up in a sheltered life and then and then understanding like going out into the world and seeing other perspectives other cultures like i said yeah yeah traveling right. a bit and seeing that sort of stuff is so common for people of that age and really bring it like shagrafara was just a guy he was a bloke who had some ideas and then through experiences came up with some other ideas and understood the world differently because he had different experiences and like he's not this jesus-like figure he's not a savior and he's also not this devil killing the west and destroying capitalism kind of character either Mm. 
he's a person like we all are he's human and he has positives and negatives and flaws and all this kind of stuff in the same way that we all do i think it's a it's one of the best films in in taking somebody who is such a cultural icon you you know that face you know that poster you know that t-shirt you know he did some political shit and south central america some that that spanish part of the world i don't something like that <laughs> that guy and then you watch this film and you're like oh my god i feel like i really know him as a boy as yeah, a man yeah. as a person and that's such a powerful experience in that film i think mm. and that and that's why i wanted to go for the again i could have gone for tons of things just getting straight out of compton and memories of murder like oh they're great choices and, and even again we were saying before about how you could say like oh titanic's a great example because it was such a huge commercial success and defines how people see that thing. Blah, 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 blah. But the truth is, I wanted to go for, in my for my picks at least, first-hand accounts, or at least based on first-hand accounts, with, from people who were there. And in each film, there is somebody who was like, who could actively say, no, this is my perspective. It's like, ah, yeah, but you're not Che Guevara, he's dead. It's like, he was my friend, we were on a bike together for months. I was as close as I could fucking get to him before he became what he became. So if anyone has a fucking opinion on it, it's me. And also we're basing on what he fucking wrote himself at the time. So yeah, I think the, there's something to be said for the interpretation of what could have been, like Tim with Zodiac and stuff, and very much a case of like, this is how I saw it. Whether it was true or not, whether, mm. what it was, that's my... I mean, in terms of based on a true story, all you can tell is your own truth in that regard. So Tim. Hello. What... Uh, what painful truth from the past you're going to bring us to next <laughs> well interestingly enough we've actually we've saved the as as obviously if you're basing something on a true story it's going to be something that happened in the past mm. um but we have saved our most recent and our most distant past films uh for last we have indeed mm, true mine is the most recent one uh it's set in the early 90s um, and again, talk about blending the the personal and the political, because this film is is kind of the essence of that. The film I've chosen is uh, 120 BPM, which I think in in the states is just called BPM. It is, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, don't know why they. I don't know. I think Americans can't count to 120. Who hey, knows? Um, that British. movie's too fast. <laughs> uh, it is a uh, a French film about the Parisian arm of ACT UP, which, for people who don't know, was essentially an uh, uh, AIDS activist movement that was focused on raising awareness and essentially shaming governments and corporations into action at a time when AIDS was very poorly understood by the general public. It was still considered kind of uh, a, a, a disease and a condition that only affected gay people and drug users um and there was a lot of slow movement and obfuscation by governments uh in terms of reacting to it and treating it as the health crisis that it was at the time uh it was fortunately something that was less true um in the uk but uh we did still have an act up uh sort of chapter here but in america and in france they there there was such resistance to actually kind of acknowledge that AIDS was a problem and then mm. to do anything about it, that it really required this kind of ground floor activism of people basically saying, like, we're here, this is killing us and you are doing nothing about it. And until you start doing something, we are going to make noise in very direct ways. 
it's it's a fantastic film. It's uh, directed by uh, Robin Campillo, who was involved in the Act Up scene in the 90s, and the co-screenwriter, uh, Philippe uh, Mongeau, I believe that's how you pronounce it. I could be butchering that. Mm. Um, he was also involved in Act Up. It's interesting in terms of our selection of films because unlike the other films, none of the characters are supposed to be directly real people. They're, they're, it's not meant to be biographical in that sense, even though some of the stories and some of the situations are based on things that really happened. It is about the movement more than it is about the people, even though it uses the people as a window into the movement kind of thing. Mm. And so the the characters in it are more kind of combinations of different peoples. They are archetypes. They are ciphers for the people who were involved in it at the time. And it's a fascinating film because it is obviously about this incredibly emotive subject where the people who are involved in this activism are literally dying you know this is this is from a condition that is killing them but it is also about the kind of practicality of activism and it takes the time to show several times and kind of the the thing that the film keeps coming back to is these meetings these weekly meetings that were held by act up and one of the first things that happens in the film is there's some newcomers to the organization and someone walks them through the process of like this is how if you want to raise a discussion point this is how it goes we don't clap here because it it means that people can't hear what's being discussed so you click your fingers you know all these kind of things and it's fascinating because you are watching it's filled with people who are obviously for obvious reasons very passionate about the things that they are doing but their idea they don't always have the same ideas and there's these conflicts about you know uh there's other organizations in the film that are dealing with aids from different points of view the, the the ones that are kind of more medically minded and stuff like that and how much should act up be involved with them versus how much should it be you know this different force that's pushing uh you know different areas of pressure that it can put on you know how much the 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 kind of the the first incident that you see in the film is essentially them kind of fucking up they go to this speech that's being given um and one of the people it stood in the back kind of thinks that something has been said and they they throw this uh water balloon filled with fake blood at this uh scientist who was kind of giving this speech um and then a couple of the other members like see this as a as an opportunity and kind of um handcuff him to part of the stage and it cuts between that and the meeting afterwards where they're kind of going like, hang on, we didn't talk this through like that. Like the person who threw the balloon is like, I, I fucked up. I kind of thought something was going on that wasn't. And so I just kind of reacted. And then there's discussion of like, hey, no, actually we should have been doing this. And like, How, OK, well, what's what's all the coverage saying afterwards? It's like, is it saying like, you know, did what are they talking about us more because we took this slightly more aggressive approach are they talking about are they saying that you know what are our allies saying are they condemning the the actions that we've taken you know all this kind of stuff and the the kind of the real politic of an activist movement which is kind of fascinating because so often those kind of things in films are like we said earlier they're seen as like the actions of like one extraordinary person in these situations you know when when we look at films you know, uh, even something like Selma, you know, it very much focuses on like, oh, it's the story of Martin Luther King and he is the, the figurehead for this movement and it's all about, you know, his, you know, oratory skills and things like that. And this is a film very much saying like, 
no, this is a, a collective and a community reacting to something that is impacting mm. them. And the you get to s essentially see the sausage be made um, of yeah. the difficulties that there are and, and, the, the, um, and the way that people, because it's something that's so personally affecting them, like there are emotional reactions to it. There are people who are like, you know, you, you are you know you don't represent us accurately you know you're in this just to get your face in the newspapers and then you know all these kind of conflicts going on as well as the very personal story of people coping with aids and hiv at a time when the medicines that were available to combat it were very limited um in both their availability and their effectiveness and you know that's part of the reason why these organizations existed is because you know pharmaceutical companies were slow to get making them and then they were artificially uh, withholding you know the the availability of them and things like that um and it's obviously a film that deals with aids you are unfortunately at some point you know characters are going to die you know especially when you're looking at this period the early 90s but it doesn't it's not a sort of a misery tour in the way that you know films like philadelphia and dallas buyers club can be because it's also infused with this sense of like joy and life. And you see these characters, yes, they are suffering, but there's also like the reason that it's called 120 beats per minute is because a lot of there's these kind of transition scenes of the characters going to nightclubs and dancing and the, uh, the people who, you know, were involved in this scene. And obviously the director and the, the screenwriter were at, at the time have sort of said like, yeah, we were, there was this incredibly serious thing, but because things were so intense, we also had this like joy of life and, and a need to escape that and go out and have fun and dance and fuck and, you know, do these and find these like funny, controversial ways to draw attention. It's, it's a really great film. It's, um, uh, it's got uh, Adele Hanel in it, who, um, it's obviously Portrait become better Adele known. Fire. Fucking love her. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's made about the same time as that mm. bunch of other people in it um, who I don't know particularly well, but I assume kind of have careers in France. Antoine uh, Renauts jumps to mind. Um, yes. I think he, I'm pretty sure this film won like a fucking ton of César awards. It did. Um, yeah. It won, like it won six, the Grand seven? Prix at Cannes. Yeah. It won six uh, César awards, oh, including yeah, yeah, best yeah. film. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 very like well received. I think a lot of the cast are going to be the sort of it's like when you watched La N back in like the, the when it came out, uh, and you're like, oh wow, these actors are great. It's like, watch them; <laughs> their careers will be big. Yeah, because it does. It feels so, and this is partially because I, you know, I don't know French actors as well as I know sure. English and, and American, but they feel just so completely in the roles. Mm. You know, there's mm -hmm. it feels entirely real and. Um, yeah, just a just a fantastic film. Yeah, I I think it's a great movie. Um, um, and as you say, it's interesting because it doesn't have that. It, I mean, it it is a very joyous celebration. It's it's a combination of rather than being a bit of a dour fest, which is not there's there's a place for those movies. Obviously, they're they calls to a very you know it's very serious discussion and very serious subject matter. But it has a real transition between or from shall we say really powerful words leading to really powerful actions. It feels like something's actually happening as opposed to just yeah. like, like a symposium where some great thinkers are having great ideas or alternatively just seeing the reactionary force. It's like, no, 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 this is literally cause and effect. And I think, yeah, it's, and, and also the humanizing side of it. So yeah, it's, it's a, it's a very recent one and fuck knows where you can see it. People other than buying it, 
but it's it's a great movie. It's, a good it's on Netflix at the moment. Go, go, go. In the UK. Oh, so there, there you go. There I was about go. to say, this is the one I haven't seen. Mm. And I have no excuse. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but I, I, it's like I say, it's on Netflix at the moment. If you're in the UK, I would definitely recommend seeing it because it is, it's, and it, it, it will, I think there's a sort of for people our age who just kind of missed out on that and obviously it was something that wasn't talked about widely you know uh in our youth but it's become a a, a forgotten part because hiv and aids have become treatable conditions that are, especially in the west are much less prevalent that part of history is starting to be forgotten mm. uh, and obviously we've seen great strides in, in kind of like uh, lgbtq representation over the past few years but there's a you know and there's a huge kind of chunk of, of of queer history that's almost kind of been forgotten and for reason that it killed off a generation of like mm. young gay men you know who there's a uh, there's a picture of like the san francisco gay men's choir from like 1990 mm. with the people who died crossed off yeah and it's like a group of about 50 men and there's like six survivors yeah. wow and it and it's just you just think like we lost and you think of the, the the progress that has been made by society and it's great and you think of how much aids slowed that down well see just the just very briefly but the age bracket because i'm just a little bit older than tim but mm. i do have quite a few distinct memories of stuff and it's like passing references i remember like there was an episode of the x-files that kind of discussed it literally briefly passing in a vampire episode i remember I remember the death of Freddie Mercury and the discussion mm. about what AIDS was. I remember the there was no danger for me as a as a, like, you know, a, a kid, but I also remember the death of like Easy E, for example, someone who was not a homosexual. And it's mm. like, yeah, but that's not the only way you can get AIDS. And that's the whole point. There are there are so many things that are like that, that we talk about now. I'm not saying to, to invalidate or say, but, or, or or even weirdly, where like, like almost like gatekeeping, where it's like, oh no, you can't have this unless you have this. It's like the story about AIDS is such a vast expansive one and it's interesting how we categorize it in movies if at all basically it's like we did the aid story we did philadelphia what do you want it's like it was huge and horrible philadelphia was on my list for this funnily enough and i was philadelphia's like, still a good movie point out we're not just yeah, slagging off for no it's reason great. It's, mm, yeah, yeah yeah absolutely or god forbid you learn about aids through rent or something like that it's like ah uh, rent good old rent maybe we'll come back to that later on in the interseason Oh, bit of, a, bit of a teaser there. Oh, a bit of a teaser. Anyway, from our most recent setting mm. to our oldest, Jack, our final film is down to you. Let me take you back to the 1840s. Oh, yeah. I mean, Some what? would say <laughs> the birth of one Matthew <laughs> Stogden. No. But yes, back to the 1840s. I'm going to talk about one of the best films I think I've ever seen in the cinema. Fair. One of the most harrowing experiences I've ever had in the cinema. And if you've put the two and two together, you know exactly what I'm talking about straight away. <laughs> um, I went and saw this film essentially knowing nothing about it apart from the very obvious tagline, which I'll mention in a second. But bear with me here, listeners. I went in basically knowing nothing, knowing, oh, I recognize the, the main actor. Apart from that, I don't know anything apart from the title. And then he found out what a jellical cat was. Exactly. <laughs> and then cats, I've, I've lived the jellical life ever since. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, and I went into Cinema City here in Norwich, which is fantastic for showing, you know, films that are... Independent films? Independent films, yeah. Politically charged films. 
they show the smaller movies that you don't see in view and odin and the big kind of mainstream blockbuster stuff you see in most of the big cinemas and i thought you know what yeah i'm gonna give it a go and me and my housemate at the time were like fuck it let's go and see some movies. we did this a lot as I, I mentioned when i went to see blue ruin one of my favorite films Magnificent because i went movie. in completely blind and was like i have no idea what to what to expect here. i'm just gonna go and see it saw it at cinema city absolutely loved it i had the same experience with the 2013 movie 12 years a slave god that was eight years ago Fucking i know hell. right i that blew when i was doing when i was like looking up like when did this film come out Oh my God, I had just come back to Norwich. So I came back to Norwich in 2012. That's for the year I graduated uh, university. So, and I spent about nine months, you know, with my partner at the time, blah, blah, blah. That all came crashing down when I came back to Norwich, moved in with a mate from high school and uh, yeah, tried to rebuild my life from scratch basically <laughs> in Norwich. And like I said, a very common thing for us, would be, we would go out to Cinema City, we live nearby, We'd go out and see a film like once a week and just pick something we had no idea, go and see something weird, go and see something we'd never heard of, go and see something we're not able to see in the other big, you know, chain cinemas and all that kind of stuff. And for whatever reason, we chose to see 12 Years a Slave. And I remember walking out of that cinema and being like, that was amazing and I never want to see it again. Because <laughs> just the the deep sorrow and sympathy and, if I'm honest, white guilt from watching that movie is just potent and has lived with me for the last eight years since I went and saw that movie. But I went in knowing who Chiwetel Ejiofor was and that was basically it because I'd known him from Firefly and Serenity yeah. and stuff like that <laughs> and Kinky Boots. And I was like, wait, that guy? What? I mean, he was, he was good in them, don't get me wrong. I didn't really think anything of it. But okay, cool. See what... See what Chiwetel Ejiofor is up to these days? Sure, why not? Oh, it turns out it's, yeah, one of the most perfectly paced, brilliantly acted, spectacularly directed by a person we've mentioned before. Matt, you've given him a, a sequelized film in the past. Mr. Steve McQueen. Was it pre? It was prequelized. Yeah, it was prequelized. Yeah. Sorry, yes. Um, your Zululand yeah. twist. Um, mm. Steve McQueen is a fucking master. and. I also have seen Hunger and Shame also in Cinema City uh, <laughs> and had similar experiences of like, oh, I'm real sad now. Oh, this is bad. <laughs> um, that was amazing. Now I feel terrible. Yep. Um, and for those of you who don't know, 12 Years a Slave is this um, adaptation of a memoir written by Solomon Northup, who was a free man born in the, like I said, the, the mid 19th century in the um sort of like the 1820s, something like that. And he's got a daughter, he's got a wife, he's got a son, all this kind of stuff. He is a free black man in America. He is tricked and kidnapped and essentially sold into slavery in the South. And it is his journey through that process. And <sighs> fucking hell, it is brutal and powerful and harrowing, as I said. Seeing his journey, seeing the one of the standout performances, as anybody who's seen the film already knows, uh, Lupita Nyongo's kind of incredible breakthrough performance, and people seeing her mm. as Patsy, she is spectacular. Seeing Michael Fassbender be just the absolute worst, horrible fucking slave owner, playing 
Edwin mm-hmm. Epps. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got Benedict Cumberbatch. You've got Brad Pitt, Alfre Woodard, Sarah Paulson, Paul Giamatti shows up, Michael K. Williams shows up. It's an amazing cast, and it is just... I think it's it's a literal immaculate film. I can't think of anything that I would think like, oh yeah, well, I was taken out of the moment because of this weird choice of shot or this person's accent didn't make sense. Even Fassbender gets away with an accent in this film. <laughs> and Fassbender is notorious for me for being like, I can hear Irish, Michael. I can, <laughs> I can hear it. I can hear your little twinge, your, your Irish fucking magneto. <laughs> Draw. Um, but in a, in a sort of New Orleans setting where you have, uh, you know, someone of Irish descent with money, it's like, but this weird twang accent where it's like, what is this? That fits perfectly. It, yeah. makes, sense, it makes sense in context. Yeah. Exactly. Um, Brad Pitt is fantastic in it as well. And you just see this, yeah, like I said, this horrible, harrowing story that then obviously you learn he eventually writes this memoir about it, the real guy, Solomon Northup. You learn about his position and his role in that movement at the time and the abolitionism that is happening in America in the 19th century. It's fascinating and such an eye-opening experience for me as a 22-year-old kid, essentially. Uh, Like I said, coming back to Norwich where I was born and kind of like, I need something to just, you know, take my mind away from... (laughs) I just lost my job and broken up with my my long-term girlfriend... I finished university. I don't know where my life is going right now. I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do. I'll go cheer myself up and go to the movies. Oh, no. But I still stand by it. And this is one of those films I talk to people about and say, this is one of the... I never want to see it again, but it's a fucking masterpiece. Movies. And it's an example I've given to loads of people of like, oh, yeah, wasn't that the... It got like a bunch of Oscars and stuff, right? It's like, yes, it did, but... Go and fucking watch it because it is, in my opinion, a literal masterpiece. Yeah, it, it, it is. I I completely agree with you. And it's it's like that's a fantastic film. I never want to watch again. Yep. <laughs> um, I I I'm sure I will at some point because it's so good that I do want to watch it again. And the performances are so great in it. And the direction. Some, some would say is they're transformative so too. Some not me, not you. Someone. No. No. But it is, it's incredibly hard viewing. Um, the sequence where um, the Paul Dano's character oh, yeah. um, essentially tries to tries to lynch uh, Northup and he's left yeah. like on his tiptoes with a noose around his neck for hours. And it's just the, the sense of agony that McQueen and, and Chiwetel Ejiofor with his performance managed to get across is just, it's... It's incredibly hard watching as it should be because it is about... That's the thing. It's a hard watch because it needs to be and because it should be. Absolutely right. One of the great things that doesn't get discussed about that scene is also the fact that as it's going on and you go, oh, this is terrible, it's so painful to watch. In the background, everyone else just starts coming out and the other slaves just playing games and relaxing. It's like, because this is normal fucking life for them. This is not something unusual. No one's going to help him because they won't get in their own trouble themselves. And it's like, this is fucking horrific i mean just jump in there for a second one of the worst things a human can do to another human is claim dominion over them whether that's sexually emotionally psychologically or physically or through any form of like slave labor in any way shape or form and 
the fact that we have never really learned that lesson. We always say we do, and then we rebrand it, and it's like, but this doesn't count. That's not that, that's not the same thing. And it's like, oh, fascism and Nazis and that sort of stuff. It's always not the same thing. It's like slavery isn't really a thing anymore, is it? It's like, yeah, fucking slavery is a fucking thing right now. Are you mad? Who, who, who makes your trainers and t-shirts, motherfucker? Like, yeah, you tell me. Check yeah. check check that Thirteenth Amendment. It's like, oh yeah, mm. doesn't apply to people in prison. Yeah, it's 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 an unapologetic movie. In every way, shape, and form, as it needs to be, and you got this pounding sort of Hans Zimmer score through the whole thing. It's tense, mm. and then it's gone in other moments, and you think, I kind of feel like I'm really too in this now. The performances are great. It's it's just a really uncomfortable watch, again, as it should be, because from the very start of our description of these things about the formulas and how these things are tired, and how we're still making these movies and the biopics and the based on true story stuff, blah blah blah. You know, does it tell anything new about us as a people? And it's always like a watered down version. It's never the full detail. And it's like, and yet what we've discussed here with these movies, every single one of them we said, and it's so good, and it's so great. Well, you have to see it. It's like obviously not all of them, not it's not a blanket statement, but it's a chance for us to tell a story about us as a people, as as a, as humans. And a lot of the time, those stories are fucking miserable. Yeah, pretty much. So on that note, I'm going to cheer you all up. We're going to round off because we can't leave on that note. It's just depressing. Sorry. <laughs> With some rotten tomatoes. Way. You teased it earlier, Matt, that they're all going to be incredibly highly rated. Yeah. You are you are correct, sir. They are incredibly highly rated. I would like you to guess the lowest rated and highest rated of these nine movies. So to give you a quick rundown, we've got Zodiac, Death of Stalin. BPM, aka 120 beats per minute, Downfall, Persepolis, The Imitation Game, 12 Years a Slave, Dolomite is My Name, and The Motorcycle Diaries. I have not put them in any order there, by the way. They just happen to be on my screen in that order. Any guesses what the lowest, and bear in mind they're still going to be high, and then the highest rated on Rotten Tomatoes. Any guesses, gentlemen? I I think The Imitation Game is going to be lowest, Mm. because... It was around the period when Benedict Cumberbatch was in everything. Uh, <laughs> um, I remember those days. I, I can't remember exactly, but I remember there being some very similar films around the same time of this sort, of the biopic sort. And I think, it personally, for me, it's not quite at the level of some of the other films on here. I think there are really good moments in it, but I think maybe it's just my... I've never been a huge fan of Cumberbatch. And so a film centered around his performance is never going to quite <laughs> click with me. Um, but yeah, uh, I think that's going to be the lowest. I I don't know the score for two of mine. I know the score for uh, BPM, which I know is very high. Mm, it is. But it is very high. I'm tempted to say I think 12 Years a Slave might be even higher. Ooh. My opinions are different. Interesting. Interesting. I think the Motorcycle Diaries will be the lowest. Oh. Because there'll be enough critics saying, you can't make this movie about Che Guevara. <laughs> and it's like, you didn't even talk about how he's a dickhead and we should have killed him in Bolivia. And he was this, he's the reason why the nuclear missile crisis. And it's like, yeah, it's, yeah, sure. So I think there's gonna be enough loaded, charged, charged politics in that one to bring it down a bit, in my opinion. Um, and then enough people saying like, I actually wanted a story about all of his life. And you're like, you know, I didn't get it. It's like, well, you get the two parts of it that uh, Benito de Torres in. So that's my opinion for the lowest. Highest, 
Mm, maybe Persepolis. I'm going to say, because I don't remember anybody saying anything bad, I'm going to say Dolomite is my name. Because Ooh, I think because it's Netflix and because it was a big thing, nobody said this is a bad movie. And as we know from how Rotten Tomatoes works, no one has to say it's the best fucking movie, but enough people mm. to say it's good. And no one's going to say this was shit or this wasn't good. This didn't need to be made. There'll be enough that's fun and that they'll, you know, chive with, I think. They're my choices. Interesting. I'll, I'll, I'll let you in on a secret. The lowest is 83% and the highest is 99%. That Which is again, the extent of these nine movies. movies. Says it all. Funnily enough, Tim, BPM is the highest at, oh, wow. at 99%. It, I mean, it's usually a case of like, oh, yeah, but there's less reviews or whatever. There's actually still a fair fair number of reviews. It's uh, 134 reviews there. Compared to Dolomite's My Name, 232 reviews. It's comparable there. Persepolis also has 162, comparable there as well. So it's not an outlier. You know, it, mm-hmm. it has a legit 99% yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, the lowest, you are correct, Matthew, is the there Motorcycle Diaries with 83. Yeah. Has an audience score of 92, though. So, yeah, you know, yeah. um, I'll give you a quick rundown and you'll go, holy shit, these numbers are crazy. Like we did with Steven Spielberg. We're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> 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 oh, yeah. Martin Scorsese films. They're really highly rated. Uh, so Motorcycle Diaries is 83. Then we have Zodiac and Imitation Game, both 89. Mm. Then we go up one point to Downfall at 90. Then we have both Death of Stalin and 12 Years a Slave at 95. Persepolis at 96, Dolomite at 97, and BPM at 99%. Big numbers, guys. Go and watch all of these films, (laughs) listeners. They're all brilliant. I mean, I always come to the... When it's films like this, because even the the imitation game, which I'm like, you know, I I like moments of it, I would still give it probably a 7 out of 10. Right. Which is is a positive. That's how Rotten works. Who is watching... 12 Years a Slave and giving it like a 5 out of 10. It- Let me have a look, shall yeah. we? Oh, <laughs> curious. I don't know if we're ready for this. Um, assuming it's going to be some assholes, some well-mean people saying that, um, it's like, well, it does a bit of a white savior with Brad Pitt's character. It's like, that's, I mean, sort of. It's a bit too uh, hard watch. The, all that kind of stuff. I think, it's too I think boring pacing. I, I, think I think it's going to be, it's too brutal. Yeah. yeah. It, yeah. I felt and too guilty. Like, I didn't know why. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, I've got a few headlines here that are, yeah, too brutal, that kind of stuff. This isn't a film about oppression. It's a, lu- it's a luscious meditation on sadism and cruelty. It's called slavery, oh, that's, motherfucker. That's a- <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome to slavery. And again, this is the tame version. <laughs> Yeah, that's weird. 12 Years a Slave, it felt so much longer. That's an insensitive fucking headline on your review. Fuck me. Jesus Christ. But yeah, some people don't like 12 Years a Slave. I can understand it being harrowing and too brutal, but it's an objectively well-made movie. Yeah, that's why you say it's a good film. You weren't (laughs) having a great fucking time. That still makes it a good film. But th- yeah. yeah, I want to go. Yeah. I want to go back to watching my Transformers because it's more than meets the eye. bang pop, and I want to switch my brain off. Switch my brain off. Fuck you. Anyway, <laughs> thanks for listening, everybody. On that note, I'm I'm sorry I went on a bit of a rant at the end there. It's thank you for listening. This is what we do. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you for listening. I am JLW Chambers on the internet. Matt, 
Where can people follow you on the internet? Stogs, S-T-O-G-H-Z. You can go to the Raid Right Hand at Cody UK to read my reviews. You go to cheesemate.com to see the things I make. Tim, if people want to see the true history as told by Tim, where can they go? Well, I mean, you could go to my Twitter, which is trivia underscore lad, but that's mostly me just retweeting nonsense um, and then occasionally just my abstract thoughts about X-Men comics. Um, but that's probably the best place at the moment. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm going to feel for you, though, that way. Got a feel for who you were as a person. Exactly. I say, well, you're not a ghost. <laughs> and if you want to be part of the true story of the sequelizers, we are at sequelizers on every social media. You can go to sequelizers.com. You can find the shop. You can find the Patreon. You can find the Discord. You can find all of the podcast platforms and even little bios about the three of us and the links to our social media in there as well. A lovely little hub of all the sequelizers information. And that wraps us up for this week for the interseason episode. We're nearly halfway through the interseason, ladies and gentlemen. Damn. Season nine is approaching. Damn. We've got we've got some we've got some pitches being formulated. We've got Patreon picks already done. Season nine is coming. But until then, we'll have some more interseason goodness. Thanks for listening. See you next week. And they lived happily ever after. <laughs>